implanted the human factor in the three Daleks that you gave me. The day of the Daleks is coming to an end. Somewhere in the Dalek race, there are three Daleks with the human factor. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're diving into the 1967 story, The Evil of the Daleks. I'm your host, and I've discovered that if you rub a balloon on your arm and create static electricity, a Dalek will appear. My co-host is Guy, who, unfortunately for our podcast, is both deaf and dumb. Mm. <laughs> So a little bit of uh, context about that, because we we have a character in here who's a big black guy who is, he's uh, deaf, he's not dumb, I guess. Uh, well, no, he can't talk. So, well, I'm sorry, oh, no, he's I dumb, think... but not deaf. <laughs> right, right. Right. So he can't talk, but he can hear. And unfortunately, this trope of the big black guy who's, as they call him in this, simple and can't talk in the next story, they do it again. <laughs> ah. And the ne- now the next story, which I actually like, it's the first story of the fifth season, but this is kind of, you know, an embarrassing thing about it. And unlike in this story, I mean, in this story, as we'll see, this guy has redeeming qualities, right? I mean, he, he may be simple, mm-hmm. as they say, but he's a good guy. The next story, yeah. it's not that he's a bad guy, but he just doesn't, you know, but it's like... Uh, the you know when you have so few black characters and then two in a row are the big guy who can't talk but he's really strong <laughs> it's like uh, okay <laughs> yeah it doesn't hold up too well I'm afraid <laughs> and this guy can write at least so yeah that's good or at least write his own name <laughs> so this is the final story of the fourth season so we're getting to the end of our first season of Trouton. it introduces Victoria Waterfield we'll see and she you know I mentioned. Uh, earlier that unlike Hartnell, where we got the the classic companions right from the beginning, that with Troughton, it would be a little while before the ones who are considered to be the equivalent of Ian and Barbara would come along. Well, we have Jamie, and now Victoria, after this, will, will be joining. So the And Jamie and Victoria are kind of the Ian and Barbara equivalent for Troughton. So we're going to start seeing, you know, how that goes. Okay. And I'll say, you know, on the one hand, I, I didn't think it was a good idea to start the season with Daleks because I didn't I don't think the first doctor story for a new doctor should be the Daleks. Uh but I really liked Power of the Daleks, you know, in particular because I really mm. liked the scientist who just went nuts in the whole thing. <laughs> So we're ending the season with Daleks, and I think that's really overdoing it, but I, I think I mentioned last time in our summary, uh, I, I have read that, uh, you know, this has been voted one of the best Dalek stories and everything, so we're, hmm. as of this re- beginning, we're only halfway through, so we'll see where it goes. So on to episode one. So this is a very unusual start to a Doctor Who story because, you know, the last episode took place in this airport. And, of course, usually at the end of a Who story, you know, they get in the TARDIS and dematerialize and, you know, then show up somewhere else. 
in this case, at the end of that story, their, their TARDIS was still gone. They didn't know where it was. And this story starts with that situation where they're trying to find the TARDIS at the airport, uh, and then they go on uh, to the rest of the story. So it's just uh, interesting that we don't actually technically change locations in this story. Mm. So the Doctor and Jamie, because we've lost Polly and Ben <laughs> at the uh, end. Yeah. You know, so the Doctor and Jamie are trying to find the TARDIS, and they see it being hauled off by a truck out of the airport. And it has a sign on the side that says Leatherman. So they find a guy in a warehouse and ask him where the TARDIS was taken. <laughs> it's pretty funny because the worker calls Jamie a foreigner for using the word TARDIS. And, and Jamie's like, I'm not a foreigner. I'm Scottish. You're the foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, doctor says, yes, uh, TARDIS is a Gaelic word. So that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, As they're talking, we see that someone is listening in on them on a portable receiver. And the guy in the warehouse is unhelpful until the doctor says they're going to call the police because, you know, his property has been stolen. And suddenly the warehouse guy thinks of the name Leatherman, which, of course, they already saw. And uh, after they leave, the warehouse guy talks to the man listening in and he's told he'll get his money at the warehouse. So uh, or another warehouse, I guess. <laughs> and after they leave, the doctor points out to Jamie that this this guy's overalls were too big for him. The top sheet of his clipboard was different than the other pages. Uh, and he got friendly after the doctor threatened to call the cops. So, you know, mm -hmm. he thinks something is up with this guy. And one thing about this story is uh, the doctor is very much kind of this Sherlock Holmes guy, right? There's multiple scenes where he, like, puts together all the clues, you know, <laughs> and figures things yeah. out. So the doctor and Jamie hide, and the guy they were talking to walks by, and they follow him. The guy who was listening in on them contacts another person. This is a guy with distinctive sideburns who's sitting in a house, and he says the doctor is following the warehouse guy, and apparently this is all part of the plan. And at that house, a man called Mr. Perry enters to tell the sideburns guy, who's, who we'll learn is Mr. Waterfield, that something has arrived. Now, one of the things that was, I will admit, a little confusing to me, there's at least a couple characters in here of sideburns, and this is animation. They, and their sideburns look different, but I would get a little bit confused sometimes about who was who. Yeah. There's a lot of characters introduced in yeah. the episodes we've seen so far, too. And and I think as well we may talk about, uh, not all those characters seem really necessary. <laughs> so, like someone will yeah. show up and get killed two minutes later or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Now, an important little clue here is that Perry notices a fine example of a Victorian clock on a table. And, of course, our current time frame would have been modern for the viewers watching it, so like 1964 or 66 or something like that, right? So long after uh, Victorian times. He, Perry wants to know who makes these like-new reproductions that could pass as genuine, uh, but mm. Waterfield won't talk, you know. He's got his connections. Yeah. <laughs> so I pretty much immediately knew where they were coming from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In, In a show that involves time travel. You know. <laughs> but one thing I will, you know, we talked before is that they have generally not gotten into time travel paradoxes or, or things you could do with time travel, right? Um, I think in part because there's only so many stories you could have and they want to avoid that. But this is mm -hmm. one of the few ones where time travel is actually a key point to, to it, like I say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perry now wants to know what's going to be done with the telephone box that he delivered, you know, the, the TARDIS. And 
Waterfield says, we'll do nothing. And then to himself, he's like, nothing but wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the warehouse guy is being paid by a guy named Kennedy, and he claims he wasn't followed, but in fact, the doctor and Jamie are behind him. And so Kennedy has paid him triple. And we'll see one of the things is that everybody's being overpaid in this, which um, I think there's two aspects to it because – as we'll see, Waterfield is from the past, so he doesn't really know how much the money is worth. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the guys in the title of the show <laughs> are financing things or, you know, or through this time travel and the antiques and everything. So they have lots of money. So everybody's getting kind of overpaid. And Kennedy pays the warehouse guy triple, but he has a reason for that. He says, well, because you were followed, you're going to help me take out these guys. And uh, to his credit, the warehouse guy's like, no, I'm not getting involved in anything like that. So Kennedy just, he takes out like a club and whacks him <laughs> and knocks him out. And the doctor and Jamie enter and find the warehouse guy knocked out while Kennedy sneaks away. And <laughs> the doctor finds a pack of cigarettes with a match case that says the tricolour. Uh, you know, I was curious about this because that phrase reminded me like of a French word or something. So I asked mm-hmm. GPT. And it turns out that tricolor generally refers to a flag or emblem with three different colors, you know, and, and often arranged in bands. And the word itself comes from Latin. But, you know, so it actually is a general term, but obviously, mm-hmm. I think, associated with the French flag. Yeah, I was thinking uh, it was something from the French Revolution. Another thing I noticed about the, uh, they pronounce it tricolor. There's mm-hmm. a couple different characters who pronounce that way, which... Yeah, maybe that's the correct way to pronounce it, or maybe it's just the British way. I don't know. Yeah, I've got to guess British. The other thing here is, you know, they found this pack of cigarettes, but the doctor realizes that the warehouse guy rolls his own, so he wouldn't have a reason to have prepackaged cigarettes, so they must belong to someone else. Mm -hmm. And again, it's all this sort of, you know, Sherlock Holmes stuff going on here. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile... The warehouse guy who was knocked out on the floor wakes up, grabs his money, and runs out, uh, and then he bars the door. So it seems like they weren't being very careful <laughs> letting that happen. <laughs> but at least he got his money. With him gone, their remaining clue is the tricolor, you know, matches. Uh, and then we get another Sherlock Holmes thing, which I, I don't even think it ends up mattering at all, but they make a big deal out of it, is uh, the doctor opens it up and, you know, like half the matches are gone. And he points out that usually people pull out matches from right to left, but these matches have been pulled out from left to right. So it's a big clue to find a left-handed person. Now, I'm a left-handed person, so I don't, you know, find that too uh, amazing. But I don't even think this comes back into the story, right? But uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I can't recall it being relevant. But, uh, and, and as I'm also a left-handed person, and uh, I, think, I think it's partially true. I think sometimes I've pulled out matches left to right, but uh, I don't know that everyone is always so systematic <laughs> about how they remove the matches. The only useful thing about about being able to tell that someone's left-handed is because if they're using a pencil, they're going to have the pencil smear on their hand. <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you deal with that when you were a, a student or whatever? I did when I was, you know, because you're going across the paper with your left hand and, and the you know, the pencil is, uh, that you've already put on there is already is smearing onto your oh, hand. Oh, yeah. Well, I, as, as soon as I reached a high enough grade where I could start writing in pen, I always used that. So I got yeah. ink instead of pencil yeah, smudges. Yeah. <laughs> same principle, though, yeah. 
Jamie makes this reference, uh, I think, like where, where, you know, they're kind of not sure what to do next. And Jamie references Robert Bruce uh, without any real explanation. So I uh, asked Chat, Chat GPT about this and it said, Robert Bruce is a historical figure commonly known as Robert the Bruce. And he was the king of Scotland in the 1300s. And he's best known for leading Scotland during the wars of Scottish independence. It turns out he's associated with a famous legend about persistence and resilience because, according to the story, while he was on the run and hiding in a cave, he observed a spider trying to build a web. And the spider failed multiple times but continued to try until it succeeded. And inspired by the spider's determination, Robert the Bruce decided to continue his struggle eventually leading to his successful efforts to uh, gain Scottish independence from English rule. So Hmm. I think we've all learned something today. (laughs) (laughs) I think Scotland did end up joining the United Kingdom at some point, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. I think it's still probably a bit of a sore point, but um, (laughs) I don't know all the history over there. I know a little bit more about Ireland, um, but yeah. Uh, I mean, and one of the funny things of your – we never quite understand the United States and Europeans never understand about the United States. You know, Europeans never understand how big the United States is. Yeah. And and so it's always like, Oh, Americans don't travel. Americans are, you know, and it's like, you understand when I drive to work (laughs) that I'm crossing the equivalent of two countries, you know, in your place, right? (laughs) So the idea we don't travel because we go across the country from, you know, California to Florida, which is, would be the equivalent of, you know, going across all of Europe, you know? (laughs) um, Oh, so, so it's also, I think, hard for us to understand, uh, whether it's with Israel and Palestine or England and, um, Ireland or Scotland, like, for us, these would be little tiny places, you know, like the size of a state or something. And you yeah. know, so Kennedy is at Waterfield's house and he's telling him what has happened. And he says the warehouse guy took off with his money and went up north. <laughs> and I, I actually did ask uh, chat GPT about this because there's a modern Doctor Who story where they talk about going up north. And I wasn't sure if that was an insult or, or, or not. I guess it's not. Um but, you know, I guess probably most people, like in London or something, don't live up north, so that's a, you know. Yeah, they they do draw distinctions between, uh, there are stereotypes, just as we have the stereotypes of the rural redneck and the, you know, so mm-hmm. forth. But but I guess uh, there there's a video on YouTube, and I think, it, I think it's a joke about English northerners where they come to London and they're very friendly and pleasant. And the people of London are just horrified and run away from them and stop because they're, <laughs> they're not used to people just being plain and decent. Well, this is funny. So um, I don't want to totally dox it, but there was a podcast that I was editing for a little while and I liked the guys and everything, but they both live, um, you know, they're both not U.S. people and live in other countries. And one of the things that they criticized the U.S. for on the podcast was having good service. Because <laughs> it was, you know, oh, in, in our country, you know, people can just act how they want while they're at work. They don't have to put on a fake face and all this. And in America, they have to they have this artificial whatever. And I was like, okay, the way I always think about this, if, if someone's criticizing anything, is would the reverse work? So if the U.S. had bad service – 
would these people saying one of the good things about the U.S. is that they have bad service? <laughs> no, they wouldn't. So it's just a silly way to criticize the, the U.S. And I, I, for one, actually like the fact that we generally have polite, good service in this country. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, works for me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have all these digressions trying to keep track of the story here. So Kennedy confirms to Waterfield that the doctor found the matches, the tricolor matches, and he was interested in the tricolor name. To be absolutely sure that it was the doctor and Jamie, Waterfield pulls out photographs of them and Kennedy confirms it. And this actually happens a lot. There's a lot of word things in here, but I'll just call out like one of them uh, because a lot of times Waterfield is a little confused by words. So in this case, Kennedy says, okay. And Waterfield's like, what does that mean? (laughs) And Mm. so, uh, because as, you know, we'll discover soon enough, Waterfield is a Victorian person. So I asked ChatGPT about this and it said the term okay, you know, is believed to have originated in the United States in the early 19th century. So it wouldn't have been, you know, the vernacular at this point. So, And they have a, yeah. probably half a dozen other words like that that come up where, where Waterfield doesn't understand them. Or he uses mm-hmm. a word like there's a point where he says handsome when he's talking about a coach and that confuses the person. Now there's mm. one that's mo- in mo- to modern ears doesn't make any sense because he says coffee shop and that confuses the English because mm. it's supposed to be – do you remember what it was? It's coffee – Coffee bar. bar yeah. Now, it, of course, yeah. at least in the U.S., coffee shop or coffee bar, we wouldn't be confused by either of those, right? But uh, in yeah. modern vernacular. So it's kind of interesting as a little – record of, you know, what words the British at this time weren't, were and weren't using. Yeah. After Kennedy leaves, Waterfield retrieves a key and he opens a hidden entrance to a room. And in the room, there's this fancy vase laying on the floor and Waterfield picks it up and puts it on his desk. And then Perry comes in uh, and remarks on the new delivery, you know, this vase. And he says he didn't see it arrive. And Waterfield says, well, I brought it in myself. It came in last night, and it's for a Dr. Galloway who is extremely wealthy and an ardent collector, and they're about to meet in a nearby coffee shop. Now, this just sort of hit me out of the blue the other day, and I don't know if it's relevant at all or or just a sort of a red herring, but uh, I know that at some point in the future of Doctor Who, we discover that the planet he's from uh, is called Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. I may be pronouncing it wrong. It might be well, Gallifrey or well, something. Well, it's, it's G A L L I F R E Y. So, yeah, I'm Gallifrey. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if the Galloway is connected. It seems like a long shot. But, I doubt uh, it, but, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, if you get deep enough into Doctor Who fandom, I'm sure you can. Come up with a conspiracy theory there. (laughs) And Waterfield now says it turns out he can't make the appointment, so he wants Perry to meet this doctor for him, and he gives him the photos of the doctor and Jamie. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't – it was just not clear to me why all this is happening. Like, why wouldn't Waterfield just go and meet them himself? Why did he have Perry do it? And I don't know. But he asked Perry to tell the doctor to come by at 10 p.m. So part of the whole deal here is that – there's this somewhat complex plot going on where they've left all these clues for the doctor to find that would get him to go to the tricolor coffee shop. And then he's going to have Perry meet the guy there. Now, I mean, it's all very tentative. Like he's assuming the doctor is going to figure all this out. He's assuming the doctor is going to go and sit there for some period of time. And then, you know, Perry's going to be able to find him. 
Uh, he did show him the photographs, so he'd be able to see them. But but I just don't know why Waterfield didn't go himself. They're, they don't really give an explanation for that that I'm that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah, maybe he had to be back in his own time to help with uh, various things around there. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, this whole setup, it occurred to me that the writers are basically using this whole episode to do what the writers of that Invisible Man episode did in about five minutes' time, where somebody sets up this crime yeah. that's designed <laughs> to lure somebody into a... Or not really a crime in this case, although there does end up being a crime right. at all. No, that's a good point. They take a, and it is complicated and they take a long time in the episode. And I, I don't think that there was a real need for that. And this is a seven episode story. So I'm guessing we could have yeah. cut down one or two, you know. And like I say, we have these characters, we have two or three characters we don't really need, et cetera. Now they probably just had, you know, the thing is when you're producing the show, you got to put out episodes. So, right. you know, and maybe you don't have the budget to do another story with different sets and everything, right? So we can criticize mm -hmm. them for being too long. But if you're actually putting out the show, it's like, well, we have this budget, you know, so we need to do this many episodes with the same sets, you know, and that's just kind right. of what, what determines it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So after Perry leaves, Waterfield goes into his hidden room and he sits in this fancy chair and then... And this is a little bit confusing in the animation, but, uh, you know, I watched the story a couple times and it became more clear. So he's sitting in front of this electronic device with flashing lights and everything that is, it has arms on, um, on the sides. It's not like anything we've seen in Doctor Who. And, uh, well, well, it'll come back in a little bit. It's like, a, it's like two pedestal things standing side by side, almost like a two exercise bikes or two uh, pieces <laughs> yeah. of gym equipment of some kind. Yeah. And uh, back at the Tricolor, the doctor and Jamie are having coffee, waiting. And the doctor is suspicious about what this is all about. Um, he, but he does believe the warehouse guy was there for them to find. And he tells Jamie that there is no Leatherman delivery firm in London. So back in the hidden room, Waterfield is now – and this is – confusing the first time you're watching it and they're kind of intentionally leaving stuff out and if you watch it again you can sort of figure it out which is he's talking to the wall you know with this electronic device sitting there but there's nobody there and if you watch it multiple times what you realize is that there was someone there that he was just talking to and that person has left in some way and he's trying to continue the conversation even though they're gone. Yeah. And he's saying, look, I did everything you asked me. I just now, I just want the truth. But he gets no answer. Meanwhile, Kennedy is outside the door listening in. He's kind of curious about what's going on. Back at the Tricolor, Jamie is talking to women to see what he can find out. <laughs> it's kind of funny because, you know, Jamie's a good-looking guy, and and it reminds me of um, oh, for um, the graduate, they tried out Robert Redford for that character, yeah. and one of the reasons they didn't go with him is because they wanted a kind of dorky guy, you know, who couldn't usually get the girl. <laughs> and at one point, the director said to to Redford, "So you know when." when is the time you've been turned down by a girl? And Redford was like, 
what? What do you mean? (laughs) 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 And uh, Jamie's kind of like that, I think, for people on both sides of the spectrum, right? So um, (laughs) he goes around and talks to all the women in the bar, you know, to see what he can find out. And he tells the doctor the women don't know anything. But then the doctor notices someone is staring at him. Turns out to be Perry, who approaches him and says Waterfield wants to meet him at 10 p.m. So Perry thinks he knows who he is. He calls him... uh, I don't remember what we said, the um, Dr. – yeah, what we said earlier. Galloway. Yeah, Dr. Galloway. Uh, so that's confusing to them. But he knows that Jamie is McCrimmon. Uh, he calls him Mr. McCrimmon. So they realize, you know, he does seem to know who they are. So back at the house, Waterfield tells Kennedy to put on dark clothes for when the doctor comes. And I'm not sure this really ever comes to anything either. I don't remember him actually. Maybe he does the next episode. I don't know. When Waterfield leaves the room, Kennedy uses the lockpick to go into Waterfield's room. And in there, he finds a little chest with a key inside, and he uses the key to get into the hidden room, and he finds the device with the lights, you know, the one we were talking about, the arms and lights and everything, and he presses Mm. random buttons. Never a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Then he looks around and finds a screen that's hiding a safe, and as he tries to break into the safe, the lights on, we see over his shoulder, the lights on the device start going, and a Dalek appears. (laughs) (laughs) And Kennedy opens the safe and he sees some money, but behind him, the Dalek insists on knowing who he is. And it's the end of the episode. Now, this is the classic (laughs) thing they do with these, right? They want this end of the first episode Dalek appearance to be amazing and surprising. But because they want people to watch it, they always put the Dalek in the title. So it's (laughs) nobody's surprised when the Dalek shows up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ah, on to episode two. <laughs> well, in episode two, that Dalek who showed up, uh, as you might have guessed, the, he, he kills Kennedy. Uh, although, if, if somebody asks who killed the Kennedys, uh, <laughs> well, after all, it was you and me. <laughs> the doctor and Jamie show up in the shop. They're a half hour early. They're supposed to be there at... 10, but they show up at 9.30. And it seems Jamie knows something about the Victorian era. You know, he's he's from a period that's prior to the Victorian era, but he's apparently learned a little bit about it because he recognizes uh, this discrepancy that the antiques from the Victorian era should, in 1966, should be old, but instead they're, they're all brand new. Oh, well, and later we'll see him reading a map with English on it. And, you know, here's the, the thing they always had to deal with in Dr. Who is if they get a companion from an earlier time, very quickly it gets boring to constantly explain everything to them, right? In fact, even in this no, story, yeah. he explains to them what a, what a train is and, and all this. So they basically drop it at some point. So all of a sudden, Jamie can read English, which presumably is a Scottish person. I Well, you know, I don't know, but I don't think Gaelic would have been an English mm-hmm. alphabet. And he understands the history stuff about Victorians, like you're saying, and, he, you know, et cetera. So in this story, they just start to drop all of the, uh, this is a person hundreds of years earlier who wouldn't have known, you know, any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's probably just been uh, devouring all the information he could, you know, natural curiosity and all that. So he finds an invoice, and it's dated 1866, and it's written on what appears to be fresh paper. It's not aged or wrinkled, anything like that. 
And Jamie actually theorizes about it, that this uh, Waterfield must have a time machine and be bringing this stuff from Victorian times. Um, and the doctor sort of poo-poo-poos it, uh, but of course Jamie is more or less correct. But the doctor doesn't think that's the most likely explanation to start with. In another room, uh, meanwhile, Waterfield finds Kennedy's body. This is probably, I think, the study room. That's sort of the intermediate room between the shop and the secret room. Mm -hmm. So he goes into the secret room and he complains to the Dalek. Then he gets yelled at. The Dalek teleports out. Uh, Waterfield seems to be at the end of his rope. He, he's not. Uh, he's not a happy partner of the Daleks. So whatever's going on here is uh, not to his liking. Yeah, I'll just amplify on something you said there because, you know, it's something we have to figure out over time. So that device we've been talking about with the arms and the lights and everything turns out to be a teleporter, mm -hmm. maybe through time. I mean, basically it's a TARDIS, right? You can, it seems yeah. like you can go in different places in time and everything. And so in the first time when he was talking to it and nobody was there, the implication is he had been talking to this Dalek. The Dalek teleported away and he was still talking. And, you know, but right. this is one of those devices that's like for this story, and I don't think we ever see it again. You know, this sort of very, <laughs> very convenient teleporter TARDIS device. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be a handy thing to have. But uh, uh, this is the first we've seen of it so far, I think. So Perry, Waterfield's assistant, he arrives uh, back at the shop, and it turns out. They thought this was the Ken who had been mentioned earlier, but it turns out he's Keith Perry, not Kenneth. Uh, Perry suggests Ken could be Kennedy, uh, another one of the guys we met last mm -hmm. episode. Meanwhile, Waterfield has that picture of the doctor, and he rips it in half, uh, and he, he takes one half of it, and he's got this small little chest, you know, like a little jewelry box type thing, and he puts the one half of the picture sticking out of the lid of this chest and closes the lid on it so it's just sort of sticking out like a tongue or something. Meanwhile, out in the main shop, the doctor is trying to figure out uh, how to get to the yard to see the TARDIS, uh, and he's discussing that with Perry. But then the door to the inner room, the study, uh, it opens up a crack just, uh, just of its own accord, apparently. And inside, they find uh, find Kennedy <laughs> lying there dead. He's one of the dead Kennedys. And uh, Perry tries to call the police, but the phone is making this weird static. There's interference on it. So he goes by foot to get help. The doctor and Jamie find half of the doctor's photo, the torn photo. Uh, half of that photo is in Kennedy's hand. They eventually deduce that there's a hidden room around here somewhere. They uh, they find the keyhole for it, but before they can actually find a key that fits it, uh, the secret door just opens of its own accord. Mm -hmm. So they go in, and uh, Jamie sees the little chest that's lying on the floor there with the other half of the photo sticking out. So he goes to check it out, and when he opens the chest, gas comes out, and Knocks out both Jamie and the doctor. Waterfield comes into the room. He's got his mouth covered, so he's not breathing the gas. And they all uh, they all teleport off to who knows where. <laughs> Perry then returns with the policeman, but everyone's gone. So it's a big old mystery from his perspective. And then we see this exterior shot of a big old beautiful 
Tudor Manor on a sunny day. You know, it's got the the white walls with the dark colored beams on it and all that stuff. Very, yeah, very and I, pretty. I didn't look into this. I'm assuming they did, you know, just find one of those old mansions in the countryside sort of thing in, in England. Um, they It is a little weird here because overall I think the animation works well. It's the same animation we've seen for the last story or two. But they clearly had this 3D model of this manor, and they wanted to make use of that. So you get this panning <laughs> shot where you see the 3D model from multiple angles. And it's like, okay, we know you got a 3D model, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good-looking building, though. The, yeah. the upkeep would probably be ridiculously yeah. expensive. But, uh, well, nice building. it's funny because there's a British show. Oh, it was like a British cooking show or something where um, chefs would go to these, you know, castles in Ireland, I think, and, uh, you know, do meals from the time period when, you know, the castle was, was relevant or whatever. And it's actually a really good cooking show. But one of the things you would learn through it is that the people maintaining these castles, these were working class people. You know, maybe their relatives have been rich, um, but they're not. And just like what you were saying, it costs a huge amount of money to keep these things going. So they would have to open it up as kind of a museum or almost a circus or whatever and get people to come. And, you mm-hmm. know, because if they didn't, they'd have to, you know, get rid of the land and it's like their historical ancestors land and everything. So, right. but yeah, it was really kind of a, you know, uh, a thing around their neck. What is the, around your neck? The, um, albatross. Yeah. It was really an albatross around their neck cause they had this big expensive thing they couldn't afford, but they really, really didn't want to give up on because it was part of their family history. Yeah. Oh, sure. (laughs) Well, in this manner, uh, the doctor wakes up in a chair. They're in a little parlor, sitting room type place. Jamie's there, too, in a different chair. And this maid comes in. Her name's Molly. She gives the doctor a hangover cure that uh, is... Remarkably effective. It is uh, it works works very quickly. Yeah, they mentioned this a couple of times, and my implication is that it's basically alcohol, right? Which I think was sort of the universal cure uh, mm. at the time. Because yeah, he's like, "Oh, this is remarkably dog, effective." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jamie says the same later. So that was just my assumption. <laughs> yeah, it could very well be. Yeah, or who knows? It could be a Tabasco sauce and beer. It's uh, I've heard that's a one. Electrolytes work for me, I think. That's, that's what it is. It's electrolytes. Mr. Maxtable, it turns out, is the master of the house, not Wakefield. But Wakefield came in with the doctor and Jamie last night. The doctor's memory of these events is pretty cloudy. Yeah. I will say about Maxtable, I mean, everyone else in this has these, like, sideburns and everything. But Maxtable, uh, like me these days, has this big beard. So and and big hair, so that kind of sets him aside from <laughs> from everybody else. Yeah, I'm. This just popped into my head as I'm trying to remember him. It didn't occur to me when I was watching the show, so I could be wrong. But in my memory, he is a vague resemblance to Karl Marx. Kind of. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Maxtable's the master of the house, and uh, the doctor asks Molly the date. But before she can tell him, uh, Maxtable enters with Waterfield, and he gives the answer. It's 1866. So the doctor's upset with him. He accuses him of killing Kennedy. But Maxtable says uh, we are all of us the victims of a higher power, (laughs) a power more evil and more terrible than the human brain can imagine. 
And uh, Waterfield explains that they've uh, taken his daughter, Victoria, these mysterious bad guys. And the doctor sees a big portrait over the fireplace that Waterfield's staring at. And uh, he asks if that's the Victoria, the daughter. And Waterfield says, no, that's Victoria's mom. Uh, she's dead now, but Victoria looks just like her. <laughs> I just... All I can say is there's just various inappropriate things that I think of uh, when, you know, oh, no, that's, that's you know, not her. That's her mom. And I'm just, <laughs> 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 yeah, who knows? <laughs> did you, so of the many, you know, when I think about Host Choice and the many, many things I think about, did you ever see uh, the original Gaslight movie? Uh, no, no, I'd like to. Yeah, well, but I, I okay, haven't. I may put that on my host choice because uh, oh, it's a really good movie and, you know, yeah, it has some of these sort of disturbing things. <laughs> yeah. oh, very good. Yeah, I'd be up for that. That's like one of those old 40s or 50s movies. Yeah, and it was it? the first movie with Angela Lansbury. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, and so, uh, and she play, <laughs> she plays a total slut maid and it's <laughs> just kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah okay. very good. And, you know, yeah, it's funny about the host choice because I I think about it way too much, and it's like, oh, I do this, and what if I do this, and what do I do? <laughs> so, <laughs> just way too many to do, but uh, you know, yeah, that definitely is one of them. <laughs> so uh, this picture of uh, of Victoria's mom that looks just like Victoria, presumably, uh, the camera kind of focuses in on it, and then the image sort of fades into. Victoria uh, herself, who's in a very similar pose, so it's like the painting just sort of right. turns into And do her. you remember from when we watched The Invisible Man, when I, I pop, did the pop quiz that you passed, who this is? Oh, let's see. Who this is? Uh, hmm. it, well, so it, she, this is the little girl in The Invisible Man. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> all right very good so it's funny because she had worked with Troughton in that and uh the actor who plays jamie fraser hines had worked with Troughton as a child so he had worked with both her and fraser uh as children and then they become his companions in doctor who so, so how much time elapsed between uh, the like invisible man years. and this Oh, really? That long? Okay. So she was probably uh, like eight or something in Invisible Man, and she's like 18 now. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because she definitely looks like a young adult in yeah. this one. Okay. So, anyway, we've we've uh, faded uh, or dissolved, whatever the term is, to uh, Victoria's room. And there's a Dalek uh, who is concerned that she's not eating enough. She's giving her food to the birds outside the window, and the Dalek <laughs> says, you will not feed the flying pests outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's very upset that she's lost like 17 ounces or something. Uh, uh, but it's good to have a Dalek care, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, at least uh, if if they're trying to make sure that you're eating right instead of uh, looking to exterminate you, then uh, <laughs> he actually you get said, at least a bit of a reprieve. He says at one point in here, "You, we are not going to exterminate you or something like that. I was like, well, that's a relief when a, when a Dalek says that to you. Of course, of course, there's always an asterisk when a Dalek <laughs> yeah. says that. I'm like, wait, yet. <laughs> 
Well, it's coming up really soon, but the Dalek is like, the only lives that matter are Dalek lives. And I'm like, okay, when you tell a human that, you're kind of, you know, giving away the game, right? <laughs> you're, yeah, to... you're, not, yeah. you're not winning friends and influencing people <laughs> yeah. there. So the Dalek orders her to stand in a scanner, and that's how he discovers that she's lost 17 ounces. And he says she'd better eat or she'll be force-fed. Then we switch to Maxtable's laboratory. Um, Maxtable is explaining what's going on to the doctor, and there's there's a lot of conversations in this that uh, I'm trimming way down, but I'm still uh, it still ends up being a long mm-hmm. summary despite all that. So Maxtable explains that he's always been fascinated by time travel. Waterfield is a technological wizard of some sort. And Maxtable is the rich guy who can finance him. So the two of them together have done all this stuff that's in the laboratory. Yeah, and this is very historically accurate, right? A lot of science uh, in those times occurred by these people who were just rich and had lots of time and, you know, got interested in in different scientific things. And as we'll see here, got interested in alchemy. So this is pretty valid for, you know. Oh, yeah. It's just a similar thing went on with uh, artists and patrons, I mm-hmm. think. You know, you're a rich guy. You can afford to have Michelangelo make a custom <laughs> sculpture for you or whatever. Yeah, why not? Of course, you, you uh, have had some nice uh, custom furniture made. So, <laughs> That's uh, true. But what I think about is uh, there's these – so Michelangelo kept, uh, you know, basically a diary. Or actually, I'm thinking about Da Vinci. Um, Leonardo da Vinci kept a diary, but well, Michelangelo did, and he complained in his diary about the paint falling on his face when he was uh, oh. doing the ceiling. And da Vinci had this whole diary, and I saw a play based on his diaries where uh, he was complaining because he had this, he was sort of this sugar daddy to this, you know, 20 something boy. And he's complaining in his diary about how the boy is running around and doing stuff with his friends and not spending time with Da Vinci and you know and all this stuff so, and stealing his money so he can buy things and all this. So anyway, it's just funny when you you know go back and find out what these people were really thinking that are now kind of you know these amazing artists and and everything who've, who've impacted the world. But uh, yeah, yeah, they they had their own mundane problems <laughs> like all the rest of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So uh, now Maxtable starts explaining the theory behind this big experiment of his, and I've summarized it very nicely here, (laughs) I think. They've observed that mirrors project an image over space, uh, and then therefore static electricity plus mirrors should equal time travel. (laughs) So they built this cabinet with 144 precisely polished mirrors in it, and this turned out to be basically a lament configuration, which uh, I don't know if you've seen the Hellraiser movies, mm-hmm. but that little black and gold puzzle box that yeah, summons all the monsters, that's that's called the lament configuration. But in this case, it summons different creatures. Instead of Cenobites, you get, well, uh, I'm not going to give away the big surprise, <laughs> even though we already have. Uh, yeah, I, I guess we already know the Daleks have made their first appearance. So, all right, it's the Dalek. <laughs> so this uh, this box summoned the Daleks, and they invaded the house, and they kidnapped Waterfield's daughter. Waterfield goes on to explain, uh, uh, we had opened the way for them with our experiments. 
They forced me into the horror of time travel, Doctor. <laughs> and it was the Daleks who ordered all that elaborate uh, plan to lure the Doctor into a mm -hmm. trap and transport him here. Yeah, we, um, I mean, I guess they have time travel in this, so, you know, otherwise we wouldn't know how they'd know when and where the Doctor would be and all that, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, well, we saw that in... Uh, well, there was a series of episodes the where chase. the Daleks were, yeah, they yeah, went they to were. the Empire State Building and the Mary Celeste right. and all that stuff, yeah. Um, so at least in some, at some times and places, the Daleks have access to this uh, yep. TARDIS technology. And the, the Doctor, who doesn't yet know for certain the Daleks are involved, though he may have an, a suspicion. But he says, they knew about me, these creatures. And we've seen in previous episodes, the Daleks do remember him. And in fact, they can even recognize him after he's uh, transformed from mm -hmm. uh, suave William Hartnell into goofy Patrick Troughton. <laughs> now, I like Troughton so far. He's doing pretty good, actually. So just then, as the doctor's saying that, uh, a Dalek comes in. And uh, now the... Uh, the gag is revealed. It's the Daleks all doing all this stuff. Uh, and the Dalek says, we have your time ship. We will destroy it unless you help us with an experiment. <laughs> and the doctor is very indignant. He won't be a slave and so forth. But uh, the Dalek says, basically, shut up. And the experiment is to perform some kind of test on Jamie. Mm -hmm. And the doctor is to tell Jamie nothing about the test. You know, he's not to have any forewarning or know that he's being tested. And having spoken his piece, the Dalek uh, goes back in the box of mirrors and departs. Well, I think also, I think it's at this point where he's like, well, don't do Jamie, do me or whatever. And the Dalek explains, you know, by, by having traveled with you, Jamie is a superior human or something, but... You have traveled too much, so, you know, that wouldn't be useful. It, it didn't totally make sense, but yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, the doctor's just too uh, too experienced. <laughs> and plus, although they probably hadn't even come up with this at the time, but uh, plus later we learned that the doctor isn't strictly human. You yeah. know, he's got two hearts and all that kind of stuff, I guess. But I haven't done a lot of reading about Doctor Who, so I mean, I, I don't know a great deal about stuff that's to come, but this is sort of like uh, stuff that I've managed to pick up over time. <laughs> anyway, Maxtable has a theory. He says he doesn't know for certain what the Daleks want, but the Daleks have confessed to him that they're always defeated by humans, which seems like an odd thing for the Daleks to confess. I think they <laughs> want to keep that on the lowdown. Mm. But, uh, but they've admitted it to Maxtable. And his theory is that their experiment is going to be to try and isolate the factor that makes humans able to beat the Daleks. And once they've isolated it, they can then try to graft it into the Dalek race. Mm-hmm. So that's what he thinks, and it, uh, subsequent events will show that that seems to be close to the truth, at least uh, in these first four episodes uh, we've seen as of right at the moment. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the sitting room, Jamie is finally coming to in his chair, and the maid Molly is tending to him. She gives him the miraculous hangover cure, which uh, treats him just as well as it treated the doctor prior. Max's daughter Ruth comes in, and they uh, they chat for a while. Uh, Jamie and uh, Ruth, 
And uh, we don't really learn anything new from the whole conversation, so I didn't bother taking too many notes on it. And when Ruth leaves, there's... Uh, oh, and Molly, by the way, is gone for tea or some such thing, so she'll be back in just a moment. But when Ruth leaves, you have these big, tall window doors going out to a patio or a yard or something. When Ruth leaves, the scoundrel comes in, and he conks Jamie on the head. Uh, and then Molly knocks on the door to bring the tea or whatever, and uh, so the scoundrel hides... Uh, she comes in, and she uh, she sees the unconscious Jamie back in his chair, and she just starts to check him out uh, when this uh, when this bad guy grabs her. Meanwhile, we see the doctor is heading to the room where Jamie is right now, and he's determined he's going to tell Jamie about the test. Uh, no matter what the Dalek ordered, he's going to give Jamie a fair warning. Mm-hmm. When he gets to the room, it seems Jamie's still sleeping in his chair, but... On closer investigation, it turns out to be Molly. And meanwhile, in Max's lab, Maxtable, that is, uh, a Dalek tells him to order the doctor to begin his test. Uh, and Maxtable points out he first has to explain to the doctor what exactly he has to do for the test. But uh, the Dalek tells him basically, get out of here. So the test is about to begin. Uh, back in the sitting room, the doctor's looking for clues to Jamie's disappearance, because it's just Molly who's in here now. And, uh, he says something rather ominous to Waterfield that certainly doesn't improve his spirits any, uh, and Waterfield's already a pretty, pretty <laughs> much a nervous wreck. He says, everything you say, Waterfield, is true. If we cannot find Jamie... The Daleks will take pleasure in killing everyone in sight, and their greatest pleasure will be in killing me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then we cut away to some other room where two Daleks are talking. First one says, the humans have been told to begin the test. Second says, any delay will result in death. (laughs) But the first says, there will be no delay. And that's the cliffhanger for this episode. Not really one of the all-time greats. Yeah, I was going to say that overall, so far, anyway, in the first four episodes, the cliffhangers are not the best. They're just kind of like, oh, oh, okay, I guess we're done with the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So episode three. So the Daleks want to start the test, but the humans don't know where Jamie is. And the doctor is suddenly interested in a piece of straw that he's found. So it's another sort of Sherlock Holmes thing where, you know, he finds this sort of seemingly trivial thing, but it's very important. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, the scoundrel, who we find out is named Toby, is threatening to knock out Jamie again. But, and they're they're in a barn, which is why the straw was yeah, relevant. Yeah, this guy named Terrell enters, and here's, you know, um, there are all these characters, and both Toby and Terrell are going to be short for this, you know, world. And it, I just feel like you could have just gotten rid of these characters and cut down an episode or two. But I understand they had to uh, had to meet the mm-hmm. schedule. But anyway, so this guy named Terrell enters and, and I, he also has sideburns. So I tend to confuse him with Waterfield, even though they have different mm. sideburns, but you know, it was easy <laughs> for me to kind of get confused. And he's upset at what Toby has done to Jamie. And Toby points out that he brought Jamie from the house, like Terrell told him, but Terrell claimed he never said this. Troll then pays Toby, and Toby leaves, and there's a strange sound, and Troll grasps his head, 
And then things seem to change, and he suddenly asks Jamie where Toby is, you know, the person he just sent away. And now Troll wants Jamie to tell him where Victoria is, and he has a very different affect. So it's clear that, you know, there's something going on with his brain. He's sort of switching back and forth and forgetting things and all this. Um, And then, you know, he – so through all this, he sounded kind of reasonable, but then his voice suddenly changes to be kind of harsh and – and he tells Jamie, Victoria's in Paris. Why are you asking me about her? Even though he just asked Jamie about her. <laughs> Jamie wants to know if Terrell told Toby to knock him in the head. Then the doctor comes in. Terrell leaves. Jamie tells the doctor how Terrell has acted. And I'm just, you know, whatever. I mean, I kind of almost don't want to talk about this whole scene. It doesn't really matter. And But the doctor tells Jamie he knows what's happened to Victoria. She's a prisoner of the Daleks. Yeah. And now we have a scene, and there's going to be a couple of these, which I kind of like. It's a little different for the Daleks, but, you know, they have this use they want to make of Victoria. And as we've seen, they're very concerned that she doesn't starve herself and, you know, et cetera. And uh, Dalek says he's now having her move to a different room, so she needs to gather her things. And this is what I mentioned earlier. As they leave the room, the Dalek says, do not be afraid. You are not to be exterminated. And they're like, that's a relief. (laughs) Dalek tells you that. In the house, Jamie is hiding behind a screen while the doctor talks to Waterfield. And the doctor tells Waterfield that Jamie will do whatever he's told. He's going to cooperate. And this seems to upset Jamie. Meanwhile, a Dalek enters Maxtable's room and tells him the female human being has been moved and the testing is ready to begin. And Maxwell says the Dalek is going to be pleased with the man he's brought from London. He's a rather simple, and he calls him dumb, uh, which I believe was, I mean, I, I guess that was not able to talk, right? We talked earlier about could you not hear or talk? Yeah, yeah. right. And he says he has an undeveloped brain. <laughs> it just makes me think of Abby Normal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, the Dalek tells uh, wants the Dalek wants to see this, and he hides in a side room. And Maxwell brings out this large black man named Kamel, and gives him a steel rod to bend. And first, he tries bending it with his knee, but that doesn't work. So he puts it behind his neck and manages to bend it with much effort. And then, and this all takes a long time. This is padding because they they <laughs> take like minutes <laughs> with this stuff. Maxwell then places a board over two stools and has Kamel break it with his fist in true 1970s Kung Fu style. <laughs> and then Maxwell shows Kamel Jamie's photo and tells him Jamie is an evil villain who will kill them all if he can. And uh, he's going to try to get past Kamel and he must not allow that to happen. Then Maxwell takes him to the quarter where Jamie is going to show up. And he shows Kamel how the door here is a trap that drops spears. So... Yeah, it's like a portcullis of spears that come about halfway down. Yeah. So if Jamie gets through the spears, then Camille is to deal with him. In another room, the Dalek is talking to the doctor and saying he must do what they want since they have his time machine. And the doctor talks to Waterfield about how the Daleks want the human factor so they can incorporate it into the Daleks. It'll be a new superhuman race of Daleks. Hmm. And this is where the doctor has shown several inactive Daleks that have been brought from Skaro, their native planet. Uh, they're they're not ready to go yet because they're waiting for the human element so they can be introduced into these uh, fledgling Daleks. Yeah, I think they're described as dormant yeah. is the term used. And so, I mean, in the previous Dalek story uh, where they had that, 
the capsule in the doctor's laboratory that turned out to contain a whole factory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there was something mentioned in there, or implied at least, about how they had a bunch of dormant Daleks on board there <laughs> that they could put in the exoskeletons as they constructed them. Right. And the Dalek tells the doctor that Jamie must not be aware of the trial and the doctor must start the test. Uh, and Maxwell says, well, Jamie must attempt to rescue Waterfield's daughter. In another room, Ruth and Terrell and Jamie are having a discussion or an argument <laughs> Uh, until Terrell has another attack, he kind of a headache or, or migraine or something, and he leaves the room. The maid Molly comes in, and this is someone I, you know, you kind of might think would become a companion. She's sort of this nice, perky person. Mm -hmm. And she offers to have Jamie and the doctor's bags taken up to their room, but then she admits that she would be the one taking the bags herself as the house is haunted and the staff have been leaving. So, <laughs> yeah. And from what I've seen so far, Molly is more interesting than Victoria. Now, that, that could change over time. Yeah. Um, well, we shall see. <laughs> Molly tells Jamie that Terrell is usually a good man, but sometimes something changes about him. And then the doctor comes in. Molly leaves, and Jamie is upset at the doctor for talking to the murderer, Waterfield, and for saying that Jamie would cooperate. So, you know, he's referring to when he was behind the screen and listening to them. Also, right. Jamie doesn't believe the Daleks are here. He's never seen one. And this is an interesting little thread in the story, right? Because Jamie's started developing a mind of his own, uh, and he's angry at the Doctor, and he doesn't believe the Doctor about stuff. So, you know, he sort of uh, has a spine here. Um, yeah, he, uh, he seems to think the Doctor is taking him for granted. And Waterfield comes in. There's more arguing. The doctor points out that Waterfield can't do anything because his daughter is being held. And the doctor and Jamie can't do anything because of the TARDIS. Jamie is disgusted by all this. And he starts to leave. And the doctor, they have this big argument. The doctor tells him not to be a one-man army and that he shouldn't ruin everything by trying to rescue Victoria. <laughs> and then when Jamie leaves, it's clear that, you know, this is all a setup where the doctor and Waterfield were giving Jamie the information to start this test. Um, to get him to yeah, a little reverse psychology. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, Waterfield asked the doctor if he laid it on too thick. <laughs> uh, so Terrell meets with Toby in the stables and Toby is unhappy with his pay. You know, he's a working class guy and he wasn't paid what he was supposed to be. And he threatens to tell people his stories about this place and people who will pay him. And he's upset. Terrell is telling him one thing, one minute and another thing, the other, and then Terrell has another attack, and Toby knocks him out and takes his money and a key that he finds on him. Meanwhile, the maid Molly is carrying a classic Victorian candle uh, and enters a room, and she finds Jamie and gives him a map she's found in the master's study. And he looks it over and says, this is the South Wing here. And this is where I was saying, you know, the map, as we see it, it is all in English and everything, and he, you know, suddenly he knows how to read a map, and he knows, you know, theoretically the English on it. So uh, we're we're clearly transitioning the uneducated Scott. <laughs> yeah, although he did uh, he did have some experience fighting the English. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so he may actually have had to read maps in English uh, back <laughs> yeah, in Scotland. Possible. I don't yeah. know. So Jamie leaves, telling Molly he's going to hunt down a few ghosties. 
And in Maxwell's lab, the doctor is saying that every one of Jamie's reactions will be recorded on the Dalek machines. And Maxwell is very excited, you know, classic Victorian scientist type. He says, and then transformed into thought patterns on a silver wire, a wonderful creation, (laughs) which is true, you know, the ways we were able to capture sound. And I've still never got my head around like signals going through the air, you know, radio or or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, In fact, I still, I mean, kids today wouldn't understand this, but... I remember the day that that uh, we got an email from Steve Jobs. This was at Next, and he's like, "I'm sitting in my chair in front of the fire, sending this because he it was, he had one of the very first, uh, you know, Wi-Fi uh, connections ah. to, to his laptop." You know, <laughs> 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 um, and uh, yeah. So the Dalek says it's up to the doctor to select the major feelings that make up the human factor. So, what feelings are they going to have, Jamie? you know, indicate so that uh, they can suck them into Daleks. (laughs) I'm not sure they should be giving the doctor the choice of the feelings, but uh, I guess they (laughs) trust him (laughs) for some reason. (laughs) Well, he has to, uh, so far in the, in the next episode, I think he reveals two suggestions uh, for these. And uh, he actually, in both cases, he, does a little bit to try and explain or justify them to the Dalek. So uh, I don't think the Daleks are going to just accept everything he says uncritically, <laughs> uh, but they uh, they certainly may be able to benefit from his expertise. Yep. So another Dalek rolls in and says Jamie is on his way, so it's time to record everything. And Molly mm-hmm. has taken Jamie to a door that the Master has protected and never let her go into. Meanwhile, Toby comes through a door into Maxwell's lab, and a Dalek comes out of this. There's a little Dalek cabinet there, <laughs> and uh, Toby runs and gets a negative film treatment, so he's dead. So, <laughs> like I say, like you know, I think he's a perfectly interesting character. He looked interesting, et cetera, but he doesn't really do anything. He just kind of hangs around for a bit and then gets killed. But okay, um, yeah, and it's a, it's kind of an interesting. Uh parallel that in both the the present day in 1966 and and in 1866 both cases you've got these scoundrels who are sneaking around getting up to shenanigans that they shouldn't be had kennedy in the modern day Mm -hmm. who snuck around the secret room and got killed by a dalek and now you have the same thing happen with this guy here yep so uh yeah seems to be a little pattern there (laughs) So Jamie and Molly hear him get killed, and they're scared, and Molly leaves. Jamie takes out the tricolor matches and lights a candle, and it turns out, by coincidence, the candle he lights is a special candle that opens a secret door. <laughs> and he's about to walk through the door, but a bat comes out and startles him, which is fortunate because this was the trapped door, uh, so then the trident spikes drop down, but don't hit him because he, he got startled. Yeah, that was a very helpful bet. Uh, <laughs> one of the most helpful. Uh, yeah, next part to of this, Bruce you know, Wayne. I'm not clear how helpful it is to the Daleks if Jamie is just sort of getting lucky. You know, I'm not sure what their, you know, recording is going to do. But okay, uh, so Jamie then goes past the spikes into the room beyond, and the mute black guy Camille is at the top of the stairs with his arms folded. You know, looking very. Uh, it's actually kind of like a James Bond villain shot. He looks like Mr. Clean with a fez, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Jamie asks who he is, and the guy closes in on him, and it's the end of the episode. Yeah. 
there's episode four, which starts off with uh, Kemal and Jamie are fighting. And it goes on for a minute, and finally, Jamie knocks him through a railing, and uh, Kemal plummets to the ground floor. And when he does, uh, he, he makes this little sort of Jerry Lewis cry, you know, when he goes through the railing. It's, uh, you know, he, he doesn't say Glavin or you know, something <laughs> like that, but it's, uh, I don't know, there's something amusing about it to me. Anyway... He uh, he hits the floor. Uh, Jamie hides uh, in an upper room behind a closed door. When Kemmel recuperates and he's charging towards the door, uh, at the last moment, Jamie flings it open. So instead of running into the resistance of the door, uh, Kemmel just runs right through and he barrels all the way through the room on the other side mm-hmm. uh, to the window, which happens to look out on open outside <laughs> so now he's uh he's jumped out the window inadvertently and ended up on the roof he's now slid down to the edge and he's hanging there by his fingertips you know literal cliffhanger <laughs> and uh jamie bless his heart he looks around finds a coil of rope and he rescues Kemmel. meanwhile we get a quick little cutaway in another room uh, a dalek uh, has a handkerchief that's <laughs> monogrammed with a Volkswagen logo, and he leaves it here as a lure. Uh, back on the roof, uh, once Kemmel's rescued, he leaves Jamie alone. He, he's not interfering with him anymore, not fighting with him. And Jamie finds the room that has the discarded handkerchief in it. Um, he goes to pick it up, but at the last moment, uh, Kemmel pushes him hard, uh, which uh, which knocks him out of the way of an axe trap that uh, falls. Yeah, down I mean, at him. first it seems like Kemmel is attacking him again, right? You know, but it turns out he's helping him. Yep. Yeah, Kemmel uh, Kemmel's repaying the favor there. So in the uh, laboratory, which uh, the doctor and the Dalek are using to monitor the experiment, they're talking, and uh, the doctor points out that. Uh, Jamie saved Kemmel's life, and the Dalek says this was human weakness. But the doctor counters that uh, if he hadn't, he would have died in that room of yours. If you want the human factor, a part of it must include mercy. <laughs> so I don't know if the Daleks want to be introducing that sort of thing yeah, into their systems. Yeah, it seem uh, very on brand. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the rest of us would like to see it happen, but... Uh, I don't think they would. So in Maxtable's laboratory, I think this may be a different area from the lab where the doctor's monitoring things. But uh, Dalek tells Maxtable and Waterfield that it's killed an intruder. It made me think of those uh, robots in Berserk, the classic <laughs> video game. Yeah, I played a lot of that. He said uh, it was one of the first games, I think, that had speech synthesis mm-hmm. in it. And, uh, you know, they'd uh, every time you died, you'd hear that... Uh, Shot the humanoid, shot the intruder. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what the Dalek has done with this poor guy in the ground. Toby, I think his name was. Mm -hmm. Waterfield uh, wants to tell the doctor about this, let him know the Daleks have gotten violent. But the Dalek says, no, you don't need to tell him nothing. Uh, So Maxtable urges Waterfield to play along. Uh, That's the only sensible choice. 
Waterfield grows increasingly despondent. That's that's what I actually wrote in my notes, so it's got to be true. Uh, he's uh, he's just really unhappy about this whole situation. He's he's a guy who I guess has a pretty uh, pretty strong conscience, and this isn't weighing well on him. Yeah, I think the difference between him and Maxwell is that Maxwell is in this for scientific interest, right? He wants more of what the Daleks know. Waterfield is just in this because his daughter has been kidnapped and he wants her back, right? So it's a they have very different motivations. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Maxtable's motivation isn't even as lofty as the pursuit of pure science, uh, but we'll get to that uh, in a few minutes. So Waterfield has a Lady Macbeth moment here. He's like down on his knees looking at his hands. He's saying, there's no end to this. The hands of the devil. <laughs> He goes on to say that when his daughter is safe, he's going to go to the peelers. He doesn't use that word, but that's that's what a low-class Victorian person would have called the police. <laughs> he's going to go to the police, and he's going to confess to everything, uh, which, of course, would implicate Maxtable as well. So Maxtable, uh, surreptitiously, uh, when, when Waterfield isn't looking, he uh, gets a pistol out of his desk. Uh, and then he goes to help Waterfield dispose of the body. So, meanwhile, in the south wing, uh, that forbidden area of the house where the experiment is going on, Hemel um, and Jamie have a moment of conversation, except uh, it's sort of a one-sided conversation because Kemmel is mute. Uh, but he can write, so he traces his name in the dust on a windowsill. And he's also, it turns out, he's very adept at communicating through gestures. So he can, he can get a lot across to Jamie, despite his, uh, despite his muteness. I had written here in the notes, uh, maybe it was Jamie's experience uh, as a fighter that helped him learn to interpret the signals, you know, because military people are always doing those uh, little hand gestures and stuff. Hmm. You know? At least in the movies, I don't know about real life. <laughs> that's how that's how it goes in the movies. So Kemmel uh, points out the monogram on the handkerchief, VW, Victoria Waterfield, and then he opens this little protective packet that he carries, uh, and he has got a little flower in there, <laughs> you know, a little little dried dried pressed flower type thing. And Jamie deduces that Victoria gave it to him, and he reveals to Kemmel that she's a prisoner here somewhere, which he isn't aware of. So they agree to proceed together. They're uh, they're allies now. <laughs> uh, we get a quick cutaway to the doctor and a Dalek monitoring the experiment. <clears throat> they're just uh, sitting there monitoring. They don't have any talk right now. In the stables, Waterfield and Maxtable bring the body of Toby into the stables. Um, and we see uh, that Ruth's fiancé, Arthur, he's lurking in the shadows Waterfield is jumpy. He's he's nervous. He's hearing sounds. Uh, and finally, Maxtable just loses his patience with him. He says, Waterfield, I am sick to death of you. And, uh, you know, that doesn't make Waterfield feel any better than he already does. But he's upset because the two of them now, in addition to everything else, uh, his daughter being kidnapped and so forth, uh, now they're both accessories to murder because they're helping hide this body. <laughs> So finally, Maxtable sends him to his room and just says, get out of here. And 
As, uh, as Waterfield leaves, Maxible seems to be about ready to shoot him in the back uh, with that pistol he took out of his desk earlier. But then Arthur steps in and stops him. He says he doesn't, he, he doesn't die yet. Mm. And Arthur uh, instructs him to go back to the laboratory and says he'll take care of the body. And then he says something very uh, interesting, I guess you could say. He says, you will obey. You will obey. <laughs> so uh, that certainly suggests that uh, if the Daleks aren't actually taking over his mind, they're certainly uh, rubbing off on him. Mm. <laughs> so we'll see where that leads. Meanwhile, in the South Wing, Jamie and Kemmel are sneaking around. They see a Dalek ahead of them down the hallway, but it moves on. And Jamie has some helpful advice for Kemmel. He <laughs> says, never mind about those, Kemmel, unless they catch sight of us. <laughs> so that's a brilliant observation. As long as they don't spot us, we're okay. Yep. <laughs> There's a guy who... Uh, Always really sucks at stealth video games. <laughs> I, uh, I take that kind of personally. So uh, then we get another cutaway to the Doctor and the Daleks still just watching the experiment. Jamie and Kemmel proceed, and Jamie triggers a pressure plate. I don't know if you ever went to, like, those, uh, you know, the county fair might have a little trailer that was a fun house. You know, like, you go in, and it's just very cramped mm -hmm. corridors, but you'd... Every now and then, you'd step on this pressure plate, and you'd go, meh, and then, you know, a big strobe light or whatever would come on, and you'd see that right to your left is, uh, you know, some animated animatronic of an mm -hmm. axe murderer or whatever, you know. But that's this, this pressure plate, when he steps on it, it makes some kind of buzzer sound similar to that. And uh, in this case, though, instead of a harmless display, it triggers a mace that comes swinging down at him. Uh, unfortunately, Jamie knew it was coming or, or intuited it, and he says down, so they both duck down right before it comes down to hit him. And this trap, this mace, they, they, they watch it swing in loving detail for uh, probably close to a full minute <laughs> before it slows to a stop. Um, so another little bit of filler there, I think. Mm. Back in the laboratory with uh, where the doctor's monitoring things, the Dalek says, we do not trust you. What thoughts are you using now? That's <laughs> interesting way of phrasing it. Mm. Um, the doctor gives a little discourse about how human beings have five senses, and he lists them off in case uh, it is a children's show. you got to teach kids <laughs> these basic things. Um, but then he says, but there is instinct, too. Jamie used instinct to avoid your trap. Mm -hmm. So we're up to two uh, elements of the human factor now. <laughs> uh, there's mercy and there's instinct. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if they're going to spell out an acronym if we get to the end there. <laughs> well, now we see Jamie and Kimmel have reached uh, this big high ceiling room, and it's got a balcony in it. Um, kind of reminds me, now you did play Bioshock mm -hmm. Infinite, right? Yep. Uh, th this is going a ways back probably for you because I, I don't think you liked it enough to play it multiple times. <laughs> but uh, when Elizabeth was imprisoned in that uh, big uh, songbird tower, mm -hmm. she uh, she had this big room that was like, it was kind of like a library, but she had a big balcony up top. And 
Uh, anyway, this kind of reminds me of that style of room, but all you really need to know is it's a big room with a high <laughs> ceiling, and there's there's a balcony that doesn't seem to have any obvious staircase leading to it, which we'll figure in in a little bit mm-hmm. in a most in a most anticlimactic way, but we'll get to that. So there's a Dalek there. She's standing on the balcony. There's a Dalek there quizzing her on her name, and he makes her answer loudly. So this is almost definitely just uh, part of the test. It's it's to let the test subjects know, you know, that they can hear her voice and know they're right. getting close. And uh, she's dismissed once she's uh, satisfied the Dalek. Kemmel grabs this mace that's hanging on the wall, and he makes gestures to explain an elaborate plan which uh, jamie jamie narrates as as he's gesturing he says what are you going to do with that referring to the Mm -hmm. mace then he says you'll attack the daleks draw them off down the corridor (laughs) while i go up there and rescue her somehow so (laughs) so this i mean just now reminded me of something so um Ashland, Oregon has the Ashland Shakespeare Festival, which uh, me and my ex went to for probably almost 20 years in a row. And it's a really great festival. But for a couple of seasons, they were doing this sort of inclusive thing where they had a, 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 a deaf or mute, you know, one, uh, I don't know, if, at least mute actor playing roles. And it was so what they would do in the in the Shakespeare plays is exactly this, right? Some mm. one of the other characters would look at him as he signed and then say what he was saying, right? And ah. you know, I, I was a complete jerk because I understood they wanted to be inclusive, they wanted to give someone with this disability a chance to, you know, be an actor in, in all these things, but it was completely distracting, you know. Yeah. Um and yeah, it, I can see that. It it really took away from things. So uh, it was unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, uh, I can see how uh, I, I, I could see it working well in some situations, but uh, um, yeah, I can also see it just sort of not going over yeah. that well. <laughs> oh well, win some, you lose some, I guess. So uh, Jamie and Kemmel are communicating just fine, despite Kemmel's uh, lack of talking. Back with the doctor and the Dalek, uh, the Dalek wants to know what the significance is of this plan that they're formulating. And uh, it boils down to, the doctor says, uh, that finding the girl is only part. Not only do they have to get to her, but they have to survive long enough to get her away. So they're trying to find a proper balance of uh, prudence and uh, daring, I guess you could say. In another room, meanwhile, and this appears to be also in the South Wing, uh, Ruth's fiancé, Arthur, he's giving Molly a hard time and saying that she's hysterical. He's found her here, and she's not supposed to be here this time of day. And she says, but I heard Miss Victoria's voice. I like his reply. Did she say how the weather was in Paris? That's where she is, Molly. (laughs) So he keeps asking her more questions about why she's skulking in this part of the house and so on. And he's getting more and more angry. He's calling her a liar and uh, really hostile. But Ruth shows up, she intervenes and gets Molly out of there. She returns to Arthur, and, and Arthur... He seemed, he responds well to Ruth. Uh, he, he he doesn't get nearly as testy with her. Uh, she says, Arthur, tell me what's wrong. And he, 
He denies that anything is, and uh, she asks if her father has influenced him in some way. And he says, no, not your father. <laughs> in Maxtable's laboratory, uh, Maxtable is now complaining to a Dalek. Uh, he's not happy that the uh, their arrangement has been one, uh, one-sided <laughs> up till now. You know, the Daleks seem to be getting all the benefits. Apparently he hasn't seen the previous Dalek stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is all new to him. It's old hat to us at this point. But yeah, never trust a Dalek. But sure. So Maxtable, uh, he's going on, he's already sort of half-heartedly made a sort of feeble threat, and the Dalek uh, chided him for it. And he says, now you must really look to your side of the bargain. It's not beyond me to ruin the entire enterprise. <laughs> and at this point, the Dalek just rolls over to him and, and swings around, you know, rotates, mm. which uh, hits him with the plunger arm and just knocks him down to the floor. The Dalek says, do not threaten, obey. <laughs> and Maxtable shapes up a little after that. He doesn't want another swat with the plunger. Who would? Well, and also up? it's kind of amusing because we've never seen the Daleks do that before, right? So it was sort of a surprise. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, they're usually pulling out their fancy guns and whatnot. Yeah. But no, this time he just whacks them. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amusing. I liked it. So Max is more compliant now, but he... He does keep talking about he still there's a secret that he really wants to know. The Dalek replies, the Daleks know many secrets. You will learn the most important. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that is never trust a Dalek. <laughs> but we'll see. So the Dalek leaves and Ruth enters. Uh, they're talking and she asks about, uh, now this is daughter and father talking here. She she asks about Victoria and where she is, and, and he blows her off. But he wants to show her why I, this is all so important, why they're enduring all this craziness of late. So he pay, pulls out a big jar, and it has a big rock in it. And uh, he talks about how it's just a metallic rock, it's not very valuable, and Suddenly, I knew immediately, you know, where this was going. <laughs> uh, it turns out he wants the secret of the Philosopher's Stone. I don't think he actually mentions the combination of words here, but he mentions alchemists mm -hmm. and so on. And he, he goes on to changing metal into gold. To possess such a secret would mean power and influence beyond all imagination. And I am about to discover this secret. <laughs> Nothing will stop me. Nothing. Nobody. Now, it doesn't seem to occur to him that if the Daleks get what they want, uh, all the gold in the world isn't going to save his ass from <laughs> it. But it also makes me think of, you know, I read a biography of uh, Isaac Newton. And, you know, for all of, you know, like he basically developed calculus and, and you know, the theory of gravity and, and all this stuff. But... What he actually, his passion was alchemy and what he put most of his mm. actual time and energy into was alchemy. And you just, you had to think like, okay, if he was only, you know, half-assing it to come up with gravity and calculus and everything, what might we have gotten if he wasn't wasting his time with alchemy? Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Though I, I have read it argued that um, alchemy may have originally been intended as a metaphor for the for the improvement or refinement of the human spirits, you know, mm. and 
as with various things through history, people end up taking it literally sooner or later, and uh, everything goes to hell. Uh, Maybe, but I think most of them, like this guy, were in it for the gold. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, well, well, sure, that's, uh, yeah, no, everybody wants some gold, that's for sure. <laughs> so, Victoria's balcony, meanwhile, her little, uh, she, she's got a room on, on that balcony at the top of that big entry hall there i've seen it referred to as a uh and i was reading the scripts uh from checkatea.net and it mentioned it as a uh a dining hall or a minstrel gallery <laughs> if i remember right so I'm, i know what a dining hall is but the minstrel gallery was a new one on me um so i think that's uh referring to like uh old old timey uh, real old timey minstrels, not like the minstrel shows that we had here in America. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's whatever this room is called. So if you happen to know what a minstrel gallery is, you can picture it very well. So back in that room, the Dalek comes in and does the loud name interview again, you know, just to make sure that uh, the test subjects can hear Victoria and hear where she yeah. is. One thing I liked about this, especially the first time we saw it, is that the whole way they're treating her doesn't make sense, especially in the beginning of the story, but they have a plan and it all fits in, right? And the Dalek getting her used to yelling her name out so that at the right time she'll be yelling her name out and they'll hear her. I just, I thought it was kind of clever and, and you know, sort of like with Power of the Daleks, it shows them being clever. I mean, they're not always mm. clever. Sometimes they're just going around shooting people. Um. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, we almost always, when we have a Dalek story, I think we've probably had, what, four of them so far? Like not that. counting this one. Somewhere around there. But, yeah, they always show their cleverness uh, and, and their untrustworthiness <laughs> in the... Uh, in uh, various ways, so they—they they are. Uh, I can—I can see the lasting appeal of them. Uh, you know, I—I I, still—I still think the actual Dalek uh, outfits are—they're uh, kind of cool, but they're also kind of goofy. You know, I mean, it's a—they're a mixed bag, I think. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, this particular Dalek personality that they have, where they're. Uh, where they're arrogant, but they're also, uh, to some extent, uh, the arrogance is justifiable. I mean, they are really clever, especially for these slimy little brains <laughs> that go around in suits of armor. Uh, yeah, they're pretty cool, but I digress. The uh, Dalek does the uh, loud name thing again, and then after Victoria is dismissed, Jamie and Kemmel use a rope, possibly the same rope that they used to uh, rescue Kimmel earlier to uh, slingshot the Dalek into the fireplace. And uh, one thing that they has stayed consistent <laughs> about the Daleks is that uh, this uh, this elaborate armor they wear is still roughly as durable as an eggshell. Yeah. It doesn't take much to just get get their heads to explode. There is one cool shot in the animation where you see the flesh of the actual Dalek kind of frying. Uh, at the top of it, so that was interesting. Oh, I, I didn't notice yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, sort of frying because yeah. of the fire there, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so then we get a false cliffhanger moment uh, where Jamie, first he uses the rope to climb up to the balcony. That's why I mentioned that it didn't seem there were any obvious stairs or anything mm. going up there. But then Kemmel follows, and he's a bigger guy than Jamie, uh, 
And when he climbs up the rope, the railing starts to crack. But then he makes it up there, so <laughs> it's no big deal. Uh, so once they're up there, Jamie knocks on Victoria's door, calls her name. Down below, we see a Dalek roll into the big room, and then another emerges from Victoria's door. And that's the end of episode four. Yep. And, uh, I mean, we'll be continuing on in this with the rest, but at this point, we haven't seen the rest. And I will give this story this. Uh, I have uh, maybe tiny hints from things that I've read, but you really don't know where the story's going <laughs> from here. There's three more episodes. Um, so Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I have to say I'm fairly interested so far. It's, uh, it's pretty good. There is... There is a good deal of filler, but there's also a good deal of content, and uh, and not all of it is time-wasting content. Yeah. Well, also, I'd say, like, the last couple, like, the faceless ones and everything so far, it's, you know, the acting is all fine. Uh, there's nothing particularly embarrassing about that. You know, there's a little bit of embarrassment with the character of Camille. But on the other hand, you know, they do treat him as a good guy and everything, so it's... So, you know, but it doesn't so far, and I know there may be something coming up that changes this. So far, there's not like a particularly appealing villain or anything, you know, there, there's not. Yeah, aside our, from the Daleks themselves. Yeah, yeah. But, you yeah. know, they're not doing anything special at the moment, uh, uh, yeah. you know. So I'm always looking for that, you know, nothing in the, nothing on earth can stop me now or you know, whatever, uh, that moment or. Uh, so or we did so. actually. Actually, Maxtable said almost the same thing. Yeah, you know, nothing will stop me. Nothing, nobody. But he didn't really put his. Yeah, into yeah. It. He's like quite, you know, <laughs> he's not very scary as a bad guy. So he, he, he came across as an eager amateur. Yeah. So we'll see what happens in the last three. But again, you know, it's all solid acting. I know one or two of the guest actors were pretty big name actors. You know, they're kind of like, oh, I'm surprised they were in Doctor Who sort of thing. So, uh, uh, and Jamie's getting a chance to stretch and, you know, his character a bit in part because, I mean, so far he's always been sort of the, the simp for the doctor, right? Oh, the doctor is so smart. Mm -hmm. We'll do whatever. And this is the first story where he kind of gets a chance to be, be mad at the doctor and disagree with him and, and yeah. you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and ironically, the doctor was manipulating him into it all. <laughs> yep. Um... yep. Well, we'll see where it goes after this. <laughs> <laughs> One week later. So episode five, Jamie and Camille, and uh, I listened to a person named Camille, so it's really hard for me to say Camille. Ah, <laughs> ah, 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 ah. I think it's Camel, actually. Yeah, Camel, yeah. So Jamie and, uh, and Camel <laughs> used the rope they climbed uh, up the balcony with to catch and pull a Dalek off the balcony, and it smashes on the floor, and is <laughs> we once again see that, that Daleks are basically eggs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They then rush into Victoria's room and talk to her for a bit. Uh, then Jamie has, and the, she's never seen Jamie before. She knows Kemmel. She doesn't know Jamie. So Jamie and Kemmel then pile everything in the room against the door to block it. Oh, this this is kind of cute, I thought, because Kemmel's lifting like these, uh, they're your standard movie-style pirate treasure chests, you know, these giant chests, and he's just lifting them like it was nothing, stacking them up <laughs> on top of each other. So once they're done with that, this cracks me up because Jamie formally introduces himself to Victoria and in true night fashion, you know, good old fashioned night stories, he gives her back her monogrammed handkerchiefs. <laughs> uh, yeah, the very soul of chivalry. Yep. 
in the dining room. This is kind of weird for this doctor. He's like drinking wine and he's really into it and he offers wine and food. I mean, I guess he, I can't say that. I mean, he was really into the seafood of that one guy, but even then the companions, you know, Polly and Ben said he's not usually into food. Yeah, he loved that plankton, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't get enough of it. Um, so he's really into this wine. He's offering wine and food to Terrell, who refuses them. And so it turns out, as we'll find, really is his enthusiasm about the wine is kind of a plot point. Because uh, he's trying to get Terrell to drink or eat. And uh, right. Terrell wants him to go away. He says he prefers to be left in, to his own company. <laughs> he's very rude about it, but I, I can sympathize with him. <laughs> And uh, then the doctor points out that since he's been here, he's never seen Terrell eat or drink anything. And he also says later that um, Waterfield has never seen him eat or drink anything. So uh, Terrell then pulls a sword out of a wall-mounted decoration and we'll discover in this Victorian house, and I don't know if this is accurate for Victorian houses or fancy ones, but there's all sorts of wall decorations with swords uh, in them. So uh, that turns out to be useful for the plot. <laughs> I think Bruce Wayne's house had a lot of decorations like that. <laughs> so he threatens the doctor with the sword. And the doctor pulls out a screwdriver. And at least in the animation, at first it seems like he's going to go against the sword with the screwdriver. <laughs> but uh, instead he points out that the screwdriver is magnetically attached to the sword. Then Terrell drops the sword and the screwdriver is no longer magnetically attached. So the doctor says, you know, there's something about you that is magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks he's uh, full of some sort of electricity. Then Waterfield enters and calls the doctor away. And the doctor tells Terrell he's interested in all forms of life. And my read on all this, it turns out to be a little different than what I thought. My read on all this is that Terrell was like an android or something, um, mm-hmm. you know, magnetizing yeah. the sword and this different type of life and not eating or drinking. Yeah, maybe uh, it occurred to me that he might somehow be a disguised Dalek. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they invented some sort of, uh, you know, mobile suit or something. But yeah, well, they have mobile suits, but you know what I mean. After the doctor and Waterfield leave the room, we get this weird scene where Terrell tentatively picks up a glass of the wine and tries to drink it, but a voice in his head stops him. And it's a, it's a Dalek voice, isn't it, if I remember right? It, it's a little hard to tell, but, it, but you know, it's definitely this sort of re- reverb voice that he hears in his head occasionally. It's, it's saying Dalek-type things, though, mm. isn't it? Like, obey! <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Jamie has been telling Victoria the whole story about how he and the doctor got here. Victoria can't quite remember how she got into all this. There was some voice telling her what to do. Jamie points out someone in the house must be in league with the Daleks and got her into the state by using drugs or something. And then we very we switched to a very obvious uh, cut to that where Maxtable is hypnotizing the maid and telling her that she hasn't actually been noticing anything strange. So probably related to what we were just talking about. <laughs> and when he's done with the maid, Maxtable explains to Terrell that this is how he got Victoria to go to the Daleks. So in case, you know, they decided not to leave this uh, for the imagination or anything. <laughs> he also indicates that her father's usefulness is close to an end, and he's annoyed that Terrell kept him from shooting him earlier. And uh, Terrell has another attack and asks Maxwell for help. 
And now Maxwell's like, well, you have to obey me. And Terrell's like, no, no, we obey our masters. And and Maxwell says, well, the Daleks want you to obey me. (laughs) (laughs) Terrell doesn't believe it since the Daleks had him stop Maxtable from killing Waterfield. And uh, Maxwell says, ah, that was a slight misunderstanding between, you know, me and the Daleks. (laughs) (laughs) Then Maxtable shows Terrell a secret passageway and tells him to go get Victoria and bring her back. And... The voice in Terrell's head agrees, so he goes to do it. And then the doctor is in the lab working on capturing Jamie's emotions, and Waterfield comes in. And there's just all these scenes where, you know, someone walks in and then they have a conversation. That's <laughs> basically a lot of these. Water, yeah. Waterfield comes in, and the doctor explains that each capsule is a positronic brain containing the best of humanity that will be installed in the three dormant Daleks. And they debate whether this process will drive the Daleks insane or turn them into super beings. And then a Dalek comes in and insists that the doctor stop, you know, screwing around and focus on finishing the experiment. It's like, it gives this weird instruction, like, stand at the table, speak when you are done. Do you know I was like, okay. <laughs> and then the Dalek goes off into the little closet room it tends to hang out in. And now we have this interesting character twist. You know, Waterfield so far has been willing to do all the things he's done because his daughter has been captured by the Daleks, right? But now he wants the doctor to stop the experiment. And the doctor points out it's way too late for that. You know, Waterfield has, you know, captured him and brought him here and done all this stuff, you know, the, the too late. But Waterfield is concerned that the Daleks will enslave all humanity. And, you know, he doesn't even think that saving his daughter is worth all humanity. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, he picks up a pipe to attack the doctor, but at least in the animation, it's pretty lame, right? He sort of puts it behind his back, and then the doctor just takes it from him and says, you know, that his daughter and Jamie are still in the power of the Daleks. In Victoria's room, it seems the Daleks are trying to get through the barricaded door. We can't quite tell what's going on, but something's trying to get in. And while Jamie and Kemmel reinforce it, Terrell, you know, came through that passageway, and it turns out there's sort of a hidden door in the back of the room. And he sneaks through that and, and you know, grabs Victoria and, and runs away with her. And the door closes. And then, you know, Jamie's like, oh, I should have realized there was another door in here. I don't know why you should have realized that. but uh, uh, um, And Jamie and Kemmel sort of, you know, touch everything in the room until they figure out how to open it. And Terrell waits outside the passageway with a sword, but he manages to miss Jamie and Jamie grabs another sword off the wall and it's sword fight time. <laughs> and it's a long sword fight. I mean, it looks pretty good in the animation, but it goes on and on. I think they were padding things a little bit here. <laughs> Ruth is Terrell's uh, fiance and the maid come in and Terrell ends up getting another attack in his head and dropping his sword. And then the doctor comes in and tells Ruth that she wants to save Terrell. She needs to take him far away from here. Now, I mean, I guess the Dalek had sort of left the room, so the doctor then immediately, for some reason, violated his orders to finish up the stuff and come in here. It's, I'm not sure there's any good reason other than the script needed him to come in at this point. So. Yeah. So the doctor tells Ruth that she wants to save Terrell. She needs to take him far away from here. So Ruth and the maid head to the stables, and then the doctor removes some kind of electronic control device from Terrell's neck. And Terrell returns to his senses and agrees to leave. He does have some vague memory that he might have done something bad to Victoria, and he's very concerned about that. And the doctor lies to him and says she's fine um, so that uh, he'll leave. The control device itself is, uh, uh, you just get a quick glimpse of it, or at least I only got a quick glimpse of it, but it was... uh, 
it's sort of like a box, but it also it has this sort of weird curvy handles on it. So it 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 has a strangely Victorian look to it. I thought <laughs> that's kind of kind of neat well, in keeping with the story. And we don't see Terrell again, so. I think it's worth talking about at this point. I mean, it do, the whole thing doesn't really make sense. Like, that presumably because of this device on his neck, that's what made him magnetic. And presumably for some reason while controlling him, the Daleks didn't want him to drink or eat. I mean, I just don't, you know, I feel like that was all red herring stuff, but it doesn't actually make sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could you could come up with reasoning, you know, like maybe if, he was weakened from lack of food and drink. He might be more susceptible <laughs> yeah. or maybe, you know, maybe maybe electrolytes would prevent the proper functioning of the device or whatever. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's never really explained that I can recall. Mm. So Camel then enters the lab and finds Victoria on the floor. A Dalek comes up behind him and tells him to carry the human female. And he forces Camel to take her to the cabinet where the Dalek has been hanging out. Now that that cabinet, they're not actually hanging out there just for for the benefit of the listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is the mirror box you're talking about, right? Where that which is actually the the thing that the Daleks exploited in the first place to that it was mm-hmm. it was Waterfield's attempt or Maxtable's attempt at building a time machine and it kind of worked. Well, <laughs> You are probably right. I never quite picked that up. It, to me, it was just a place he kept going into, the Dalek kept going into. So what you said makes total sense, but they didn't sort of communicate it to me. That's all I can say. Yeah, yeah. So the Doctor and Jamie now come into the lab, and, and uh, we get more of this sort of characterization because Jamie is really mad at the Doctor. He tells him he's too callous, and after the this thing is done, the two of them are done. He's not going to be with him anymore, and he's really pissed off. And uh, then Jamie sees the previously dormant three Daleks are starting to move their, you know, eye stocks and everything around. And the doctor tells him not to be afraid. These are the experiment. And they've been in this box that's kind of up and there's ramps coming off of it. So they come down the ramps. Maxible appears and explains to Jamie how his emotions have been added to these Daleks. So I guess they really wanted the kids or someone to understand. This is about the third time <laughs> they've explained this. Oh, yeah. And then the Daleks approach the humans and one pushes the doctor onto its front and rides him around in circles. And so at first it's like, oh, they're attacking or something. And then the do- the doctor yells, it's a game. They're taking me for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. Well, as Dalek runs him around yeah. in circles. <laughs> I think for, for me at least, this is one of the more interesting mm-hmm. uh, cliffhangers uh, we've seen so far in Doctor Who. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and it's kind of an upbeat. Uh, ending <laughs> at that, you know, it's uh, it's neat. I liked it. Yeah, I agree. And and also, you know, well, I enjoy more of these Daleks' behavior. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Which uh, which brings us to episode six, which picks up where we left off, and the Daleks are these three Daleks. They're playing, and the Doctor is still being carried around by one of them. And he says, look, they're all joining in. They're playing trains. And the Daleks repeat it. They're saying trains, 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 as they uh, they just sort of are taking him in a long loop around <laughs> the laboratory table, you know, mm-hmm. like, like a train set. You know, they're just going around and around. Uh, so the Doctor comes up with 
possibly the best use for his recorder that he's found so far. He makes train whistle <laughs> noises on it <laughs> while they're they're hauling him around. And then they change the game, and he says, oh, they're playing roundabout, uh, which is, uh, uh, I might call it Rotor, because there used to be an amusement park ride called the Rotor, which was really <laughs> cool. I don't know if you ever rode it, but it's, it's basically a cylinder that you'd get into and stand against the mm -hmm, wall, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it would rotate, and the centrifugal force eventually would make you stick to the wall, and the floor would drop out about a <laughs> yard down underneath you, and... Uh, it was uh, it was pretty neat because you'd just keep on going around and around, stuck to the wall. <laughs> yeah, and it it sort of made you uh, instill, hopefully, instilled a faith of physics in you. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. I uh, you know after after I'd ridden it once, I, I understood in the future that I didn't have much to worry about. And, uh, <laughs> I guess if it killed too many people, they'd shut it down. And, well, they did take it out of Cedar Point eventually, but that's just because they took all the good rides out of Cedar Point, there except is, the roller coasters. One of the topics I'd like to, I don't even think I, I have it in the, the immensely long spreadsheet, is documentaries, kind of go through the history of documentaries and do some really interesting ones. And uh, one I, I would have to put in there is I saw a few years ago was about this, I don't know they they call it, um, it was about... I was like in New Jersey or something. Oh, I think you, I don't know if we did it on the show, but I think you told me about yeah. it, the guy who, okay. We're like, yeah, I mean, everybody was getting broken bones all the time and everything because they just had these <laughs> insane rides and stuff. And yeah, this I mean, he basically built his own amusement park, didn't he? Right, right. And yeah, and didn't follow any rules and, and all this <laughs> stuff. And yeah, it was pretty insane. It's a pretty funny documentary for that to, and of course, the people who sort of did that and survived, it's a, to them, it's, it's pretty cool, but not everybody survived, oh. actually. So. Well, yeah, yeah. If you're one of the fortunate <laughs> ones, I'm sure it was a hell of a time. <laughs> so anyway, these doctors, or doctors, these Daleks are playing, uh, playing roundabout, which just consists of spinning the doctor around and around <laughs> until he gets nauseous. And he says, oh, I'm dizzy. And the Daleks do something that's really charming that, I, I mean, it's a really cute little scene. And it, uh, we get reprises of it later on uh, where they go, dizzy, 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 doctor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hearing it chanted in those Dalek voices is really cute. And these, the, the intonation these Daleks use is slightly different. It's very similar to the normal Dalek voice, but they have more... More range of pitch, I think. Something, you know, more emotion, more something in it. Yeah, and know, a little that, more childish. And the doctor explains that they're sort of going to grow up quickly, like in a matter of hours, but this is sort of their their childhood period. <laughs> right, right. And Maxtable, uh, along this, around this part, he con congratulates the doctor on his success, and he leaves the room. So it's just uh, the doctor and, and Jamie in here with the three uh, junior Daleks now. Mm -hmm. He introduces them uh, to Jamie, and he, he says that Jamie's a friend. Uh, you know, and they're they're saying Jamie, friend, and all that stuff. And the doctor says, uh, "You know what a friend is, don't you? It's somebody who likes you, who wants to help you, and share with you." And he's kneeled down, and on each one, about where knees would be on a human. Uh, he's written a symbol, which are, are Greek letters, and he, he explains that he's given them all names. Alpha, now we'd say Alpha, Beta, and Omega. I think he pronounces it Alpha, Beta, and mm -hmm. Omega. 
But it's an interesting choice of names because it's basically like naming them A, B, and Z, uh, you know, because Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet, mm-hmm. um, or I should say Z because yeah. uh, he's British. But uh, <laughs> it always cracks you up that difference. But then you have Z cars, <laughs> uh, which you know I didn't even think about it until now that Z cars is Z cars. I just thought it was no, Z cars. yeah, that's the classic <laughs> British show. Yeah, you mentioned that was uh, one of the actors we've seen appeared originally oh. in that, didn't he? Or? Well, basically every British actor was in was in it oh, because okay. it was this, <laughs> I think, decades long running, you know, cop show. Mm. So it's just one of those like Doctor Who, where every actor went through it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Michael Caine was in it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, very good. So now that they've been named, they uh, they recite their names over and over again they're like alpha beta omega over and over again and they sort of spin in a ring around the rosy they're <laughs> they're touching you know one of them will hold out his gun on the left and touch it to the plunger of the guy <laughs> you know, next to him and they spin around for a moment uh but then they stop and one of them says we must no we must go now. We are called. Um so they must have some sort of internal radio receiver cuz uh, we we don't hear it, this call. And he says all Daleks are ordered to return to Scarrow. Uh which of course is the Dalek homeworld mm-hmm. and that's originally the very first episode where we met them that mm-hmm. was that took place on that world. So one of them uh says a final friend as they leave, and then they go into that mirror box, and that takes them, teleports them to Scarrow. And now the doctor thinks that he and Jamie left Victoria in a secret passage. So they leave the room, leave the laboratory to go look for her. Uh, and right afterwards, Maxtable and Waterfield come in. So this, uh, this episode has a lot of that same phenomenon you mentioned <laughs> in the last episode, where it's just sort of, uh, people come in, they talk a bit, and they leave. <laughs> there's a there's a good bit of that. There was a pretty good show called Thirty Something a long time ago, back when I was not even quite thirty something. Uh, it had some really good episodes, and uh, and it I was like I remember hearing of it. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it was sort of the yuppies and all this, and the, and and as part of how the show worked is that the you know your friends would just show up like in the living room or whatever, you know, sort of like this, and they'd have a conversation. And I remember one of the actors was interviewed, and they asked him, you know. What would you do if your friends just showed up in your living room? He's like, call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the problem they have as a show is these people are talking all the time. What are you going to do? Have them knock on the door, open the door, come in, you know? So you just, you just create this situation where you just skip all of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty standard fare on a lot of sitcoms. I think, uh, is, you know, like. I, I think married with children, like uh, Steve and Marcy, would usually just show up, you know, or uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. various things. Anyway, Maxwell and Waterfield have come into the laboratory now. They're alone in here talking with each other. And uh, uh, Maxwell makes a very uh, half-assed effort to uh, reassure Waterfield that uh, Victoria is safe. Mm-hmm. And he's getting more and more irritated, uh, you know, just having Waterfield around. Mm. And, and Waterfield mentions that he saw Ruth and Molly. Uh, they were helping Arthur, he says, into a dog cart. Uh, and I, they, this is my actual research for this <laughs> for this uh, program. Um, it's a two-wheeled cart, 
And it has two benches so that you can have a pair of people in each one sitting back to back. Mm -hmm. So that's a dog cart. It's not actually four dogs. But that's how Arthur uh, made his getaway from the mad scientist's laboratory. And uh, Maxtable says that uh, Waterfield should go along and see if Victoria is taking a stroll in the garden. And this is this is a little indication of how much how eager he is to get Waterfield out of his hair because he repeats it a few times. Go along and see. <laughs> and uh, Waterfield finally does leave. Uh, you know, kind of kind of like the guy that you talk to on the phone and you just can't get him to <laughs> understand that you're going to hang up now. And, uh, <laughs> that, said, and I, I won't put this in, but it just <laughs> reminds me of another story. That one of uh, my partners um, in that his circle when I first got here, there was a guy who, um, what he would do when there was going to be like a science fiction convention in town or something he wanted to come to is he would call – one day and like just suddenly out of the blue and have a conversation. And then a couple days later, he'd call and say, oh, uh, you know, there's this, uh, you know, convention in town. Can I crash at your place or whatever? Right? So but the, so you got to the point where everyone knew the first call. He was like, oh, yeah, he's going to be calling you back in two days. <laughs> you know? The first one's just to soften you up. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, Waterfield leaves and... uh Maxtable sees there's a strange device on the floor, and it's it's pretty good size. If you've seen one of those 1970s stereos, and not not like the full size cabinet stereo, but like the uh, it was a combination turntable, radio, and eight track player. So it was like just a a very large turntable, basically. Uh, it's about about that size. I mean, that was the first thing I could come up with uh, as a size analogy. It's bigger than a bread box. <laughs> so he uh, he can't pick it up off the floor. I don't know if it's too heavy or it's glued there or what. And he can't seem to alter the controls on it. And there are a few different knobs and switches and doodads. Mm -hmm. So uh, a Dalek comes in now. Uh, I don't remember where it comes in from. Probably out of the mirror box. But there are Daleks in the house too. So who knows. Anyway, comes in and tells him to leave that alone, and uh, he says, uh, go get the doctor and Jamie. Uh, the Dalek goes on to promise Maxtable that he will get his transmutation formula <laughs> eventually. And it leaves, and Maxtable, instead of going to get the doctor and Jamie right away, he goes back to snooping around the box on the floor. Waterfield returns, and he starts asking Maxtable some questions. He's getting rather suspicious about the extent of Maxtable's cooperation with the Daleks, you know, and what his aim is with the mm -hmm. whole thing and how much he knows and so on. So finally, Maxtable, just probably out of exasperation, tells him about his plan uh, with the... He doesn't mention the Philosopher's Stone, but, but that's what he's explaining, the transmutation of uh, base metals into gold. And, uh, and Waterfield tries to force him physically to tell him where Victoria is. So Maxtable does the sensible thing. He picks up a wooden test tube rack and he just brains him with it, <laughs> uh, which knocks him out. Doesn't kill him, just, just knocks, knocks out Waterfield. The Dalek then returns and it fiddles with the box on the floor and it reveals that this box is here to destroy the area, mm -hmm. the laboratory, the house, and uh, probably a good distance around the uh, the house. 
Maxtable is uh, understandably upset by this. Uh, and so uh, now he begins calling for the doctor pretty frantically. Uh, now now he's putting his back into it. Well, and also mentioned he he's upset because to him, uh, at least at this point, the lead into gold stuff is not useful if he doesn't have his laboratory and all his research and everything that's in the house, right? So if they destroy the right. house, he's not going to be able to make use of the secret. Uh, and he's quite, un- yeah, he's quite unhappy about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And finally, after calling for the doctor a little bit, he just goes ahead and gets into the mirror box that will transport him to Scarrow because he can't stay at the house because it's going to blow up. So other Daleks that have been in the house, they pass through the laboratory and they too go into the mirror box to go back to Scarrow. Waterfield, who was just knocked unconscious, unconscious, excuse me, uh, he begins to wake up. And this is just in time to meet the doctor and Jamie as they come in. Maybe they heard uh, Maxtable's summons. The doctor uh, quickly gets a grasp of the situation, and he sees there's just a little over a minute left on the timer. Uh, and when they try the mirror box to go to Scarrow, it's locked up now. So uh, I don't know why the Daleks would do that. Just a breakdown of communication, I guess, because <laughs> they obviously wanted the doctor and Jamie to come along. Mm-hmm. But Waterfield remembers that uh, the other time machine, the one we saw in the early episodes that was in the secret Mm -hmm. room in the antique shop, uh, that one is here in the lab, Uh, those two terminals. And so the doctor somehow knows how to set the controls, and they teleport out of there just in time before the whole estate blows up. So next we're in a a prison, uh, some kind of cell on the planet Scarrow. And Victoria and Kemmel are already here, and Maxtable is brought in. They talk a little bit, uh, where Maxtable, he tries to explaining they're somewhere far away. Uh, you know, he doesn't go so far as to explicitly say we're on an alien planet. That might have actually made things clearer. But, uh, uh, but then a Dalek comes back in to get him again, right after he's been dropped off here like a minute ago. After they leave, Kemmel seems concerned, understandably, but Victoria makes a little joke. She says that she'll protect him, and uh, he, he just <laughs> gives her a kind of reproving look. But then he he takes her to the gun show. You know, he holds up his arm and does the classic <laughs> muscle flex. And she, Victoria, seems to take at least a tiny bit of hope just from his sheer confidence. Meanwhile, we see some cliffs on the planet Scarrow, and... Uh, I, at this point, my recollection of the, those original Dalek episodes isn't crystal clear, but I do seem to remember that there were some like big, steep mountains mm. that had to be crossed or passed through to get to that uh, Dalek city. And we're, we're, we have a similar geography here, and there's something steamy down below. It could be lava, but it could also be uh, there was a big swamp in that original series and it could be that i'm it's hard to make out for me in the animation Mm -hmm. something's steaming down there though they see the dalek city in the distance and if you remember in in the original episodes it was rather impressive i Mm -hmm. thought it was a neat little model it was uh you know sort of this alabaster gleaming white futuristic looking city and here the dalek city uh I don't think you've played it yet, but it looks to me like an outpost from Starfield, you know, that you'd stumble across on some random planet, you know, just a 
several little outbuildings sort of uh, oh, yes. haphazardly connected together. So they, uh, the doctor and company, they start going down this narrow path uh, into a tunnel, and I don't remember the order of things in those original episodes, but it seems to me a lot like that ledge that takes forever to cross. <laughs> you know the one I'm talking mm -hmm. about, where they all, one by one, jumped, uh, risking their lives across this uh, <laughs> chasm that's about a yard wide. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so it could be the same place. Maxtable, once again, we've seen him get ticked at the Daleks before, where they uh, pretty amusingly smacked him with a plunger. Uh, and now he's he's really ticked again. You know, they've blown up his estate and his laboratory, and the formula won't help him and all that. And uh, once again, he makes the mistake of making an ultimatum. He makes a demand. He demands this some kind of satisfaction from them. And that earns him, uh, it's not clear... If, to, to me in the animation, but it looked like the Dalek just kind of poked him with its <laughs> plunger. <laughs> but it, it shut him up anyway. In Victoria's cell, some Daleks conveniently stop by just long enough to let Victoria and Kemmel hear them speculate that this alarm that's now going off means that humans are in the city. Yeah. Uh, Vic Victoria uh, says to Kemmel that maybe it's Jamie and the doctor. She says, oh, Kemmel, there's a chance, a chance. Somewhere else uh, in the city, we see a black-domed Dalek. Uh, these are the elite troops of the Daleks' uh, capital city. And uh, he asks one of the human factor Daleks, the three friendly ones, he asks about the little mark uh, on his exoskeleton. You know, in this case, it's hmm. the, the Omega mark that the doctor had drawn on him earlier. And the Omega explains, the doctor gave it to him, he says, he is my friend. And the black-domed Dalek <clears throat> realizes this is not healthy behavior for a Dalek. He says, follow me. <laughs> Another Dalek uh, leads Victoria and Camel to a dark room where Maxtable is sitting. They're just apparently just shuffling him from cell to cell. Maxable asks what's going on, and he says, they say there are other human beings in the city. So apparently he overheard a very similar conversation to the one that uh, Victoria overheard. Victoria doesn't answer, and Maxable starts to get mad, but Kemmel gives him a dirty look, and that shuts him up once again. But Maxable uh, is indignant, and he says, no one can help you here, no one but me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Maxable... He doesn't have a firm grasp on the reality of the situation, I don't think. I don't think he has all along. Uh, you know, he's he's trying to treat the Daleks as if they're just some slightly shady business partners. You know, and that's, uh, uh, that's an error. <laughs> so, anyway, the Dalek comes in, or it I guess it, it never left. Uh, it tells Maxwell to follow him. And a moment later, uh, after Maxtable has left the scene, we hear Maxtable. He's making some horrible noises, like he's met a real bad end of some sort. The Dalek returns, and he tells Victoria to follow. But Kemmel has to wait here. It's just Victoria who's supposed to follow. Uh, so Kemmel and Victoria are understandably apprehensive about this. And soon enough, after she's off stage, uh, she makes some similarly chilling sounds uh, so potentially Maxtable and Victoria are both uh, singing with the choir eternal now 
Meanwhile, uh, in that uh, dark tunnel, the doctor and the others are still in there, but they're close enough to the city now that they heard Victoria's scream. And the Dalek arrives down this narrow path, and he identifies himself as Omega, or Omega. Uh, he says, I am your friend. <laughs> he says, I've come to lead you. He's going to help him get back to the, or get to the Dalek city. The doctor fakes a stumble, which lets him get down low enough to check out the mark on the Dalek. And then he resumes following, and when the Dalek gets close to the edge of the cliff, he pushes it off, <laughs> so it plummets down to the ground far below, and it blows up, as Daleks so often do when they sustain minor injuries. <laughs> and in this case, it would be a major injury, so this one I won't be too snarky right. about. So it was pretty clever little scene because first it's the cleverness of the Daleks that's always entertaining to see even when it puts our heroes in a bad way because uh, uh, they really are not not dumb gullible villains. Uh, mm -hmm. They 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 see through different subterfuges, but the Doctor countered that with seeing through the Dalek subterfuge in this case. So uh, a cute little scene, I thought. And uh, the doctor says, think I don't know my own mark? That wasn't the real Omega at all. <laughs> well, before he said that, I thought actually he had been a bit cruel, right? Because he's, because we don't know it's not, at least I didn't know it wasn't the real Omega. Um, I think I suspected, if I remember Yeah, right. for me, when he pushed it off, it was like, oh, I guess he's, you know... You know, he's pushing off one of his friends there, you know. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's what uh what's he trying to accomplish there right. yeah. but uh yeah this was this was a faker he uh you know when that black domed dalek had told omega to follow him that was uh, they were they found out what was going on and set up this little trap for the doctor now we see a cell in, in the city uh where max and maxtable i i wrote him in my notes as max so i probably call him that a few times in our recording here uh, Maxtable and Victoria and Kemmel, uh, they're reunited once again, uh, and they're all apparently fine. And Maxtable is telling Victoria that the Daleks ordered him to scream, and they ordered him to make her scream. And Victoria wonders why they would want them to scream, and she realizes this. She realizes that what the Daleks had said before about there being humans in the city. Her, their screams were intended to lure them in. Right. Uh, they're setting up a trap. Yeah, which is similar to the earlier episode where they were having her yell out her name. Uh, so Jamie, I think, would hear it. But also she mentions right. here that Maxwell had, like, really twisted her arm hard to get her to scream. You know, so, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she complains a little about that, <laughs> and justifiably. So the doctor and his little group, uh, which is uh, Jamie and Waterfield, uh, they go through... This access panel, they sort of have to crawl to get through it, and they're in a big Dalek hallway somewhere in the city. And they get caught by some Daleks, and they're led to this big room. And this big room turns out to be the Dalek Emperor's throne room. Except, in this case, the Dalek Emperor is the throne. <laughs> He's just... This big, extra large size Dalek, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 feet tall. And it's, he looks similar to a Dalek, but he also is, he's much more elaborate. Uh, there's a lot of features that typical Daleks don't have. And he's got 
these hoses hanging down from the ceiling that are probably pumping him full of healthy fluids and <laughs> so forth. Yeah, he can't move. It's kind of like the queen bee, right? He's stuck where he yeah. is. Yeah. And... Yeah. So the uh, the doctor tells the emperor that he's implanted the human factor in the three Daleks that you gave me. Uh, and right then after that, he stage whispers to Jamie, when I say run, run. And the emperor says, silence. The human factor showed us what the Dalek factor was. The human factor is useless. <laughs> so at this point, Jamie and the doctor realize the, the Daleks never really wanted the human factor at all. The plan was to uh, use that information to figure out what the Dalek factor is. <laughs> and the Daleks want to just uh, refine and reinforce the Dalek factor. The doctor says, I won't work for you. And, of course, the emperor says, you will obey. <laughs> and uh, Jamie asks the doctor what the Dalek factor is. And the doctor says he'll take a guess. He guesses it means to obey, to fight, to destroy, to exterminate. And he says, I won't do it. But then a spotlight lights up, and it shines on the TARDIS, which has been tucked away in a corner of the room all along. And the emperor says, you will take the Dalek factor. You will spread it to the entire history of Earth. <laughs> and that's our cliffhanger for this episode. That's another pretty good cliffhanger. You know, the emperor is impressive. Uh, and we, we don't really know what this plan is, but it sounds pretty bad. Okay, <laughs> 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 anyway, episode seven. Uh, so the doctor, you know, refuses to spread the Dalek factor through the entire history of Earth. <laughs> and uh, the humans are moved into a room together while the Daleks get things finished up. And Maxtable, you know, it's it, there are similarities, right? Because the last Dalek one was the first story of the season. This is the last story of the season. And in the first story of the season, they had the scientist who kind of went nuts. And here we also have the scientist who goes nuts, but in a somewhat different way. Mm. So he's so focused on the lead into gold thing that he's just, and he's so close to them giving it to him that he, now he's just like going through calculations on pages and just, you know, just trying to, you know, I guess <laughs> refine things or be ready for it or something. And that's all he can talk about. And Jamie doesn't want to hear about it. You know, the doctor points out that it is theoretically possible, which is true. Uh, if you have mm -hmm. enough energy, you can change one thing to another. The problem is the energy needed to, to do so is more than the value of what you're getting. So, you know. <laughs> So Jamie starts fighting with Maxtable, and a Dalek comes in and threatens to exterminate Jamie if he keeps it up. But he doesn't actually shoot him or try to shoot him or anything. I don't know if it's plot mm. armor or if they had a reason they felt they needed to keep Jamie around. But And Waterfield notes that the Daleks are protecting Maxtable, so he appeals to Maxtable and asks him to do something with the Daleks to protect the humans. But Maxwell refuses. He's only interested in that gold thing and just goes back to his calculations. Yeah. And the doctor is playing his recorder. <laughs> uh, Victoria asks what he's thinking, and he tells her he's trying to figure out how the Daleks are going to try and get him to, you know, try and screw with humanity. Because he, would, he wouldn't do it. He admits he wouldn't even do it to save the people in this room, you know, because it would mean all of humanity. Yeah, yeah, it'd be five people versus everyone. Yeah. yeah, and he says, and even if the Daleks then let them leave, they couldn't go back to Earth. And he, he gets, this is kind of interesting, and he speculates maybe he'd take them all to another universe or maybe even to his own planet. And uh, 
then he has an idea and he asks Maxwell about the control unit that was put on Terrell. And Maxwell just says, ah, oh, that device was always erratic. I warned them it wouldn't work. <laughs> That's why Maxwell himself was never given one. Presumably, yeah. I think, I think they say something like that. I, that could be wrong, but uh, it seems like I remember somebody mentioning it. And now the Emperor Dalek is informed that everything is ready. And so since they're all ready, the, the, you know, the black Daleks, you call them elites. I call them kind of the managers. You know, they, they go <laughs> through to the workers and tell everyone to discontinue their work. Their work isn't needed now. But one of them asks in a, in a creepy Dalek voice, why? <laughs> I can't quite say it. But it's funny because, you know, it's a, it is a Dalek voice, but it is saying this funny thing. And um, <laughs> this cracks you up, too, because the Dalek manager immediately wants to know who said that. Now, he's standing like a foot away from the person, but I guess even the Daleks have a hard time knowing which one of them is talking. <laughs> he wants to know who questioned the Dalek command. And then a Dalek, we see a Dalek enter the room with the humans, and he tells uh, Maxible that the secret to transmuted metal is in the next room. And we see one of the devices the Daleks have been working on standing there. I thought it was one of those devices. I don't know, but it's... It, 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 it has a glass top with some material in it, and it has a couple of, uh, like, readouts next to it. And it turns out one readout is the atomic weight uh, for lead, and the other is the gravity indicator. I'm not sure that gravity would actually be important, but I don't know. I think it's um, called the specific gravity, if yeah. I remember right. That's what they called it. But mm -hmm. the machine itself, just just uh, for people who haven't seen the show, it's to me it looked sort of like a blender or le even more than a blender it looked kind of like a slushy machine you know how like <laughs> a place that has margaritas they'll have those big machines where they're constantly circulating the right. slush to keep it from freezing it's it's that kind of thing it's got a big clear top on it right and we may be missing something in the animation here because i don't i didn't really notice anything changing but the numbers change to the values for gold so um this is the secret right here and Maxwell's all excited, and and the Dalek says, well, the machine is yours. Just go in there. And the doctor warns him <laughs> not to go in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and we do, I think, see the color. I mean, it's hard to tell because mm -hmm. it's black and white, but we do see the metal actually appear to change. Uh, so the Dalek seems to be telling the truth, but also um, the Dalek is not fulfilling its promise because... Maxtable knows no more about how this is accomplished than he did in the beginning. Right. So he walks into the other room, and we get some kind of wavy force field that's kind of funky. Uh, he's stuck in for a while. And then when he turns around, he has glassy eyes, and he now talks like a Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> and now a weird thing here, you know, and they actually do bring it up at some point, but it's never explained, is... Uh, Jamie says at some point, you know, they could just push us through the, the force field to, to turn it into Daleks, but for some reason they seem to want them to do it voluntarily. Hmm. Uh, so meanwhile, the Emperor is informed that a Dalek uh, questioned an order, and he's really unhappy to hear that. <laughs> and he realizes <laughs> it must be one of the experimental Daleks, and he demands that the Dalek be found immediately. And then Maxwell is walking around as a Dalek. You know, I mean, he doesn't look like a Dalek, but he's sort of stiff and, yeah. and everything. He's got the same attitude. Yeah. yeah. And he picks up some kind of box. He then brings the box back to the room with the humans, and he's able to wave his hand in front of the sensor and get the door to open. So he's an official Dalek. <laughs> and if you remember, actually, those sensors were all the way back in the first um, Dalek story. And uh, the doctor is sleeping now. 
And Maxtable starts in on his hypnosis bit on the doctor. And so I realized later, you know, because they had been protecting Maxwell all this time. They brought him along. And, you know, when Jamie went after him, they protected him. And the whole reason was this, right? Because he knows how to do hypnosis. And, you know, because he had hypnotized Victoria and he'd hypnotized the maid. And so he does hypnosis on the doctor and tells the doctor to look at the screen on this box. And it shows the TARDIS outdoors. And Maxwell says he'll take the doctor to it, just follow him, because he wants him to walk through that door and get turned into a Dalek. So the doctor walks through the door and he gets the wavy treatment. And then he turns around and now he sounds like a Dalek. (laughs) (laughs) And Maxwell tells the doctor they will work together on the Dalek factor. And uh, he shows him one of the Dalek machines. It will take the thought patterns in the positronic brain and turn it into steam, which will spread through the Earth's atmosphere. Good trick. (laughs) But the Dalek doctor says he must examine the machine. And we see him surreptitiously replace the positronic brain vial in the machine with a different one. And uh, he then gets Jamie to wake up and tells him when he gives the signal to have them all walk through the door. And a Dalek shows up, and the doctor asks to be taken to the Emperor. And the humans debate whether they can trust the doctor. You know, I think it would help. I mean, maybe they had a line and it got cut or something. But it would just help if they threw in one line or speculated that maybe, you know, the Dalek converter will only work if you voluntarily walk through or something. Because it, it just – I think it's here where Jamie says, oh, they could just push us through it. Why don't they? Uh, but they never answer that question. So. Oh, the question of why the doctor wasn't converted? No, no. Why uh, Why he, they don't just push Jamie and the others through it and turn oh, them into yeah. Daleks. Right? They want right, them to go right. through voluntarily, but it's never explained why. Yeah. Now, the doctor, I don't, I don't think we mentioned this, but I think it's somewhere in here where the doctor reveals the secret of why he wasn't converted. And it's just basically that he's not from Earth. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind I mean, of a lame explanation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it suggests that he may have all kinds of Kal-El powers that right. we don't know about, but uh, they're just going to reveal them as they become necessary. Yeah. <laughs> Always convenient. Back at the Emperor, the Doctor tells the Emperor that another Dalek has questioned orders. Now, he's lying about this. You know, he's just trying to spread dissent. And he and he had, and actually I, I well I like all of the cleverness at the end of the story uh, both first that the Daleks were you know f- f- legitimately fooled the Doctor and with the whole human factor thing now we have the Doctor saying well there's another Dalek that's questioned orders so all you need to do is send all the Daleks through that special door and all the humanified da- humanified Daleks will then become Dalek again but of course he <laughs> has switched the positronic brain thing back to the human factor. Yeah, so they're all going to become star, star-bellied sneeches instead <laughs> yeah. of the sneeches without star. So the humans watch all the Daleks, you know, go through the magic door. And then the doctor insists that the humans also go through the door. And he he's explaining that he switched the door and he says he'll join them later. And um, after the doctor leaves, the rest of them go through, but Waterfield refuses because he wants to go and help the doctor. He feels responsible for things. And as the, so nothing happens to the humans, but then they're passing these Daleks in the hall. And it's another, it's hilarious because they're like on an acid trip, you know, they're spinning in circles, you know, and a dizzy Dalek, dizzy Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> dizzy Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love all the behavior they did here. It's really funny. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's cute. I, I really, I I would enjoy seeing seeing some kind of uh, future episode where where like some of the Daleks have 
stayed permanently <laughs> imbued with the human factor because they're just a, they could be you know like star trek did that a lot i mean i don't I haven't seen a lot of star trek but i know they had various characters that were like sort of exceptions to their right, racial or right. cultural uh, standards, you know, where they'd got along with oh, the God, Federation Yeah, if this were Star Trek, and... there would absolutely be a Dalek on the bridge, you know, the good Dalek. <laughs> um, so, uh, Maxtable wants to know where the humans are, but the Daleks don't care because they're too busy, you know, having their trip. And they start asking why they should obey anyway. And then a manager Dalek shows up, and he wastes no time executing the slackers. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't get long to experience their their newfound freedom. Yeah, it's kind of sad. And the doctor finds some uh, more Daleks and gets them to follow him. And then he gets them to argue with the manager Dalek. They, he tells them to ask the emperor why orders should be followed. So he and he, the manager executes some more of them. And the doctor's like, oh, the manager, or, you know, the black ones are after you. You need to go after them. So he's literally creating a Dalek war. Uh, and <laughs> This guy said you were a jerk. Exactly. <laughs> and as they pass by, I like uh, what Dalek says, I will obey, but not without question. <laughs> and I think the doctor says something approving to that. You know, like, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> Waterfield shows up and, and although, you know, the downside of all this is it shows that, uh, if you're not, you know, well, and it's actually true, right? If you're an authoritarian, if you let your thumb up a little bit, you are in trouble, right? I mean, that's what happened mm. with, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and everything, right? Is that they started to, to liberalize. And if you're that kind of, an, um, society, if you liberalize at all, it's all over for you. Right? you know, <laughs> um, yeah, the deluge is coming. Yep. <laughs> Waterfield then shows up and puts a coat over the manager Dalek's uh, head, the black Dalek's, uh, you know, the cl one of those classic weaknesses of a Dalek. He put a coat over its eye stock and can't do anything. He stopped it from shooting the doctor. And he tells the doctor they need to go. But then the, the black Dalek shakes off the coat and fries Waterfield. So <laughs> he sacrificed himself. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. Waterfield was... I think basically a good guy in a bad situation. Yeah. And in the end, he even said he wouldn't save his own daughter uh, if it required, you know, letting the Daleks enslave humanity. So he had some of right. <laughs> uh, And as he dies, the doctor says they'll look after Victoria for him. And uh, now the doctor tells more Daleks that the emperor has ordered their destruction, but their friends are down the hall fighting for them. <laughs> it's just, it's another really good line. They did it really well. They're like, friends? Friends? <laughs> they go running down the hall. <laughs> A mass of Daleks approach the emperor. He insists, <laughs> he insists that essentially, you're not to fight in the war room. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they go to war with each other anyway, and we have fried Dalek brain everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, the Emperor's attack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you had mentioned in an earlier episode we saw you know, a single Dalek, and I had missed, I had missed that, but... Yeah, they, they make it nice and uh, obvious here. You know, you see this big puddle of bubbling <laughs> Dalek matter. Here. Yeah. It's on... And the emperor is attacked, and the infrastructure holding him in place crumbles. And outside, the humans see the Dalek city exploding. 
and Maxwell shows up and he calls for Kemmel and he has this weird voice because he sort of puts his arms up in this weird way and he says, kill, 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 kill. (laughs) And it's not like a Dalek slow voice, right? He's like, you know. Um, And he manages kind of probably by surprise to push Kemmel off the ledge and he falls to his death. Yeah, that's too bad. I like Kemmel, but uh, I guess you... Yeah, what is it? 1966 mm. might be a little little premature for a, a a person of color to become one of the companions mm. at this point, I guess. So then Maxwell goes after Jamie and Victoria, but an emergency Dalek message is broadcasting, telling everyone to return immediately. So Maxwell, now being a Dalek, he leaves and he passes the spot where the doctor is hiding, and he's he's yelling. And this is actually is similar to that uh, in the Power of the Daleks, you know, and the the other scientists. He's yelling, "The Daleks must not, cannot be destroyed. The race will survive. The Daleks will live and rule forever." And he heads off into the center of the exploding city. <laughs> Yeah, he was uh, he was thoroughly converted by that yep. uh, the Dalek factor. And the remaining humans, which is just the Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria, encounter each other. And you know, Victoria is told that her father is dead, and they head to, toward the TARDIS. And yeah, they, it was pretty stark. I mean, everybody died <laughs> except the three. Oh of them. yeah. Uh, and the Doctor yeah. then looks back at the city and he says, "The final end." <laughs> so I guess uh, no more Daleks. <laughs> Yeah, like they say in that old cartoon, don't you believe it? <laughs> I don't know if they meant it or not. I mean, because I'd have to look at the timeline. You know, you had this whole thing where Terry Nation was trying to sell the series to the U.S. of the Dalek series, and so he was going to be pulling it from them. Mm. I thought that was already done, but it's also possible that that was the case here, so that this actually was supposed to be the last Dalek story, maybe. Right, so this was just uh, closing closing that Dalek chapter uh, yeah. for good. And, of course, you know, they, I'm sure they knew that if they ever needed to resurrect the Daleks, <laughs> uh, they'd, they'd find a way and mm. nobody would question it. <laughs> <laughs> Though, if it had been an end, it would have been a pretty good one. I mean, the last couple stories yeah. here definitely steps up. I mean, they weren't written by Terry Nation. One one thing I noticed in this is that, you know, we've seen that Terry Nation <laughs> had this habit of changing the setting every show, which made for very, very cheap sets and everything. They changed the setting three times in this, kind of four times, really, because you start out at the airport, um, then you're in the modern day house with the the antiques and everything then you're in victorian times then you're on scarrow but they spend enough time with each and in the case of the airport they didn't have to create the set right so uh so that didn't really cost them the same but um i didn't feel to me this the way that those terry nation ones did where you're just kind of rushing along from place to place you actually spend some quality time in each location and it's also surprising where you go like i mean you know, two thirds of the way into the story, you're not going to imagine that you're going to Scarrow. I mean, that, you know, right? Yeah, that uh, little bomb the Daleks planted in the in the uh, Maxtable estate that was just kind of out of the blue because yeah. it, uh, you know, it, it just Maxtable looks down and there's this box sitting on the floor, and uh, uh, I was like, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to blow up your laboratory. Oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and even though, you know, like I say, the, the mute big black guy is, I'm, I have a little trouble with, but he's a good guy in this. So at least he's a good character, and, and you know, the people like yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I didn't get to see what the original actor looked like, but in the in the animation, they really just through the use of his facial expressions, mm-hmm. they make him a really sympathetic character. I think, and I feel like because I'm I'm pretty sure the same firm must have done the animation for the last two or three stories, and I, I feel like yeah, it's um, got that Archer feel. To yeah, it and, and yeah. Uh, in the first, like at the beginning of the Power of the Daleks, we talked about like there's shots where they didn't know what to do and the people would just stare at each other. By the time you get here, there's none of that. Uh, they and the animation is really good. I think they kind of you know, learned uh, not how to do animation necessarily, but learned how to reconstruct one of these episodes, you know, as they, yeah. as they went along. Sort of tightened up their technique a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, sure. Um, yeah, and they, they did a good job. They didn't have any of, the, any of the weird, you know, eye-moving things like from the Reign of Terror, <laughs> uh, anything <laughs> like that. It's a little hard in this one, well, to me anyway, to say much about Victoria I mean, she's playing a very standard sort of heroine in distress. Yeah, I don't remember a, a whole lot of uh, shining moments where a lot of personality comes out. Although there was that one that one little bit where uh, she tells Kimmel that she'll protect him. That was kind of cute. <laughs> uh, but, but that was sort of the exception, as far as I can recall. Right. And there was actually a different actress was going to play her, but this time they realized ahead of time that they wanted this character to join the crew. So that actress wasn't willing to do that. So they replaced her with this person. So as I mentioned, that means now the doctor, uh, or well, Patrick Troughton had, had starred with both of these companions when they were kids. <laughs> so, and then they're all together uh, at this point. So it's kind of interesting. And, uh, and now, uh, both of his companions, uh, won't have, uh, well, Jamie now has some experience mm-hmm. with the 20th century, but, uh, Jamie was originally what from the 18th century. Yeah. Yeah. You notice, like I mean, at this point and, they've pretty much dropped, like he doesn't know what anything is and is asking, you know, you get a little bit of like yeah. what's an airplane or what's a whatever, but it's. It's rapidly disappearing. And in fact, they, I think they go out of their way to have him debate the doctor a couple of times. He's like, oh, this wouldn't have happened by this time or whatever. So they're sort of showing him as being knowledgeable about some stuff. So I wonder if, uh, and and we, oh, we did have a companion. uh, Steven was from the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, we've, we've had a whole variety of companions at this point. Yeah. Uh, Neither of them is present day. So that's, well, I guess, no, Victoria is present day, but. It just seems very Victorian because you know she oh, she's got the big long dress and because yeah and her father, yeah well, so she's well no wait actually no, they were she, Victorian, she is Victorian. You're right. yeah because they're <laughs> yeah I forgot yeah yeah because they had all the things in that one episode where Waterfield would say a weird word or not understand a word that was said to him or right, whatever right right yeah I forgot about that um so okay yep <laughs> yep well you know it might be again obvious from our discussion but. What do you think about uh, whether this is worth watching? Um, I would say um, of the Doctor Who series I've seen, uh, this is definitely one of the ones that most highly qualifies as worth watching, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Now, it's not perfect. Uh, you know, the, the I, I, I sound like a broken record because <laughs> I say this in practically every podcast that we do but uh you know this 
seven-episode story could have been a good, solid four-episode story, I think. <laughs> uh, but uh, but allowing that that's just an ev- inevitable uh, part of Doctor Who, at least at this point, maybe it really really gets streamlined down the road. Right. But uh, uh, at this point, uh, it's it seems like that's just sort of comes with the territory. So allowing for that, um, there's really a lot of neat stuff in this, and I I I really uh, the the playful juvenile. Uh, friendly Daleks with the human factor. Uh, they are um, one of one of the one of the higher points of the series, I think, uh, or of the show uh, that we've seen so far. Um, I just got a kick out of them. They were they were. Yeah, neat. I think it's totally unexpected. It's one of the few times when the Daleks are doing something other than you'd expect, but it's but it still fits. And also, they didn't do, you know. What you'd expect, sort of like, at least in a modern American one, which would be like, oh, one of the dogs who converted would become a good friend of theirs and be protecting them and then sacrifice itself <laughs> in the end, right? <laughs> they didn't do that. They, You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's just completely surprising. And that's one of the things that I do like about the story is it, it is um, surprising, but it's not in ways that are wacky or disappointing in, in that it, each thing builds on it uh, itself. Um, and... Uh, you know, see, the Emperor Dalek is out of the blue, but but is is impressive. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I just I like the way everyone is trying to out fox each other, and the fact that the Doctor actually was oh, fooled yeah. by the whole. You know, no, we don't want the human factor. We were actually just figuring out what it was about the Daleks it was, that we wanted to, <laughs> yeah. you know, make even more Dalek. <laughs> uh, so okay, well, yeah, nice uh, nice way to end it. You know, I would. As a producer, I'm not a producer, but you know, if I, if I had been a producer, I'd say, "Oh, it's dumb to start the new Doctor's uh, first episode with a Dalek story. It's dumb to have two Dalek stories in the same year." But these are, mm. you know, I think the two best Dalek stories so far, and and uh, worked out really well. So, uh, you know, sometimes it works anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, uh, you know, it's it's fair, and then I think I pointed out in one of the other podcasts that it it did occur to me that they were going back to the Dalek well a lot but uh, then again you have some shows like I think I use the example of Battlestar Galactica where the Cylons were just constantly uh, well at least in the 1980s version and I can't speak for the remake but uh, you know the 1980s version it was like the Cylons were always the bad guys right or Star Wars with the Empire it's always the Empire so you know that can work if it's done well so yep uh, and and it was in these episodes uh, that was done well so I like it <laughs> so this being uh, the end of Troughton's first season we're gonna do you know a few a couple other things and then we will we'll get back to his second season and <laughs> see how things Go from there. I think we'll actually get some live yeah. action for a little while here. So. Well, that's uh, yeah, any more than we got this season <laughs> yeah, would, be, oh, would be nice because we got what about maybe four or five episodes, something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you th- and basically this whole season we've watched, you know, just is entirely missing practically. And and uh, so yeah, we you know, Trouton has really been lost to most people, and it's only in the last few years that these animations have come out. 
And it was really too bad, yeah, that uh, to have, you know, to be part of Doctor Who and to have your entire, or, you know, very large chunk of your work just gone. <coughs> oh, yeah, that's, uh, and uh, as you said, uh, uh, a lot of, the other Doctor Who actors seem to favor him as one of their favorites. Yep. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's especially a, a pity. But oh well, uh, I am warming up to him. I got to say that you know, having gone through this whole season, um, these Hartnell is still uh, still the apple of my eye. But uh, <laughs> uh, Troughton, I, I definitely. Uh, uh, I I've warmed up to him considerably. I like him, so uh, he's doing good. I hope he continues. <laughs> well, good good attitude to enter the second season with. <laughs> <laughs> Something closer. 